Hello and welcome back to Prevention Connection. This week we are continuing our series on cannabis by discussing cannabis and pregnancy. Anytime we talk about cannabis, we have to keep in mind that although there are many different laws at the state, county, and even city level, cannabis is still federally illegal. Because of this federal law, cannabis research in the United States is still really hard to conduct. Internationally, there are some studies, however, they are limited. What this means is because research on potential effects of cannabis has been limited, this leaves patients seeking cannabis use for medical purposes, such as soon-to-be mothers and healthcare professionals, without the evidence they need to make informed decisions regarding use. This lack of evidence-based information can pose as a public health risk. While discussing the impacts of cannabis on pregnancy, we want to emphasize that we know mothers and families want what is best for their children. We also recognize that the cannabis industry has marketed cannabis as being a safe alternative to pharmaceuticals for many of the unpleasant aspects of pregnancy and postpartum that mothers are seeking safe relief from. Because cannabis is frequently marketed as medicine, there can be a lot of confusion around what is true and false as it relates to cannabis and pregnancy. Some examples of these myths are that there's nothing wrong with weed because it's natural. The fact is, cannabis is a drug. Just because it is a plant does not mean it is good for you. Another common myth is that using edibles is safer than smoking cannabis while pregnant. However, the chemicals in cannabis as well as THC crosses the placenta, so the baby is still exposed regardless of the method of administration. Another myth is that using marijuana while breastfeeding won't impact the baby. However, studies show that chemicals and THC from cannabis can be passed to your baby through breast milk, just like with alcohol or other drugs. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends that women who are breastfeeding not use cannabis. The last myth we'll be sharing with you today is that marijuana is an effective treatment for morning sickness. The fact is, at this time, there is no scientific evidence that cannabis is helpful in managing morning sickness. It is important to discuss pregnancy issues with your physicians for symptom relief. Now that we have cleared the air on some myths and facts surrounding cannabis, let's dive deeper into the risks and lasting effects associated with cannabis use during and after pregnancy. Cannabis use during pregnancy can also have long-term impacts on children well after they are born. While limited in sample size, some research shows cannabis use during pregnancy may impact children in ways that only become noticeable as your child grows older and develops. It is important to note that secondhand smoke from cannabis can also cause lung and health issues for children. Lastly, it is important to remember the cannabis industry is a business. There is often marketing that focuses on quick relief or symptoms instead of on what is best for the consumer. At this time, scientifically, cannabis has not been shown to help with any of the conditions it is being advertised for. With black market and counterfeit products, there can be added chemicals and even other drugs mixed in, putting expectant mothers and their babies at an even greater risk. 
We recognize these are very personal choices and strongly encourage expectant mothers to speak with their doctor before consuming cannabis products to gain further knowledge about cannabis use and pregnancy. Thank you for joining us today. We have many more videos to come that will be joining this series on cannabis. Make sure to subscribe to never miss a video. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. So I have been told uh, the audio segment that we just heard that is from the prevention connection uh, they have a YouTube channel and website and webinars and all kinds of details that you can check out um, they are explicitly about preventing substance abuse so you know you know what their motivations I guess leanings are uh, for their segments and what have you the report that we just heard uh, was uh, one that they did earlier this year uh, about cannabis uh, during pregnancy uh, and I think one, the most important thing being there's not a lot of research uh, on this subject matter. Uh, it's still federally uh, a crime, so-called, uh, to participate, uh, have cannabis, uh, regardless of what the laws are in any particular state, even though I'm in uh, one of those states where it's legal federally. It's still a crime, so that hampers a lot of the research. Uh, but that notwithstanding, uh, they shared, even beyond some of the research findings, limited research findings that they did share, one of the most important things that they said that goes that coincides exactly with something that Dr. Francis Cress Welsing said many years ago. You have no idea, regardless of whether you're using CBD, if you're smoking, if you're vaping, if you're using edibles, regardless, you have no idea who exactly grew this material and then what did they put in it? I mean, we talk about all the, the labeling wars that are going on uh, over what's in these Cheetos. What's in these potato chips, you know, truth in labeling and, and not lying about all the salt and other ingredients. I mean, my goodness, why do we think uh, the cannabis industry would be immune to all of that lying and pesticides? And again, who knows what else? Uh, that they've put in these substances. And again, uh, they were talking specifically about cannabis use uh, by mothers during pregnancy, which is interesting because this book that we're reading, Countdown by Shauna Swan, PhD, she has talked about the impact of cannabis, alcohol consumption, pesticides, chemicals on the mother and the father uh, and talking about how smoking and alcohol and cannabis use uh, can impact the quality of male sperm uh, as well as what the mom is doing during those nine months so uh, I think it's interesting from both perspectives again it's just it's a lot to think about if you want to have children period try to be responsible try to be as healthy as you possibly can uh, all of that said I played that segment because the book that we are reading count down Shauna Swan PhD uh, she talked about that last week uh, in fact she talked about so many uh, different talked about the couch potato lifestyle and diet watching television alcohol consumption she talked about so many things where I said repeatedly like man they should teach this in school when I say alcohol consumption remember what did she talk about last week she said whiskey dick 
the report from Men's Health Magazine. I don't know why. I guess I was uh, a little lethargic last week for the reading, but uh, I went to look at that report in Men's Health it was from 2020. So this is during the pandemic where they wrote this report. And uh, it was the title of the report is what to know about whiskey dick, the greatest curse known to mankind. Wowzers. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, when you get close to the end of the report, it reads talking about erectile dysfunction and the the official, I guess, clinical name for whiskey dick is alcohol induced erectile dysfunction. I guess the former sounds cooler. So they write. Having this problem may also mean that there are other issues at play. Your penis actually can tell you quite a bit about your health and Gissler cautions that erectile issues might be warning signs for potential vascular problems. The penis is the window into one's heart, he says. The poeticism is meant to be taken both literally and figuratively. If there's any penile issues going on, it's worth taking a look at your heart health too. Very important, and I've heard this repeatedly. They have all kinds of little uh, aphorisms and things like that. I, the, one of the other ones that I've heard uh, from a medical professional, I believe, was you can think of your penis like a dipstick for people who uh, know about vehicles. Uh, they have a dipstick, uh, and not that I'm an expert, uh, where you can check the oil level in a vehicle, see if you need to add oil. You pull out the dipstick and kind of check and see where the oil level is. And I think the metaphor, metaphor transfer is that if you're having erectile dysfunction, this is really about blood flow to an area. So if there's a blood flow problem, might be a signal that you're having some sort of heart problem or other health issue that couch potato lifestyle right anywho thought all of that was super important uh, again we are reading this is the book club we're reading shauna swan's countdown the full title how our modern world is threatening sperm counts that's number one it doesn't even go to female problem but number one is sperm counts altering male and female reproductive development and imperiling the future of the human race full title and again reading this book I think Dr. Francis Cress Welsing would read this book and or I think she would encourage students of her theory of white genetic annihilation pay very close attention to this book again keep in mind the census information about the dwindling population of white people uh, and again we've seen this repeatedly they talk a lot about this fertility rates worldwide amongst white people be very mindful. Dr. Welsing said this is the motivation. This is the why white supremacy racism is being practiced, will be practiced, mandatory for individuals classified as white. We will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy countdown audio segment one. Part three, the reverberating fallout. Eight, the long reach of exposures. Reproductive ripple effects. Health spirals. It would be naive to think that the effects of fertility challenges or reproductive anomalies would stay in their lane without having other consequences. These difficulties can affect a person's sex life, his or her ability to conceive the old-fashioned way, the person's self-image and body esteem, and his or her sexual relationship and emotional state. But the ripple effects don't stop there. 
low sperm count, recurrent miscarriages, and reproductive disorders, such as endometriosis and polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, can have profound repercussions for a man's or woman's long-term health and even lead to premature mortality. Let's start with guys. One thing many people don't realize is that compromised reproductive health, including low sperm concentration and low testosterone levels, is associated with decreased overall health among men. In a 2016 study of some 13,000 men who'd been diagnosed with male factor infertility, researchers found that men with low sperm concentrations had a 30% increased risk of developing diabetes and a 48% increased risk of developing ischemic heart disease compared to men without the infertility diagnosis. Male infertility, including low sperm concentration, is also associated with an increased cancer risk, particularly testicular cancer and high-grade prostate cancer. Men with sperm concentrations below 15 million per millilampert had a 50% greater risk of being hospitalized for any medical reason than those with sperm concentrations above 40 million per millilampert, according to one 2017 study. Given these elevated risks, it's not surprising that men with infertility can expect to die earlier than their more fertile peers. In a 2014 study, researchers from Stanford University followed the health of 12,000 men who were evaluated for infertility and found that those with impaired sperm counts, sperm motility, or semen volume, any of which qualify as male factor infertility, had higher mortality rates during the subsequent decade than those with normal semen quality. Men with two or more abnormal semen parameters, which the researchers consider severely impaired semen, had a 2.3-fold higher risk of dying in the 10-year follow-up period than those with normal semen quality. The exact mechanisms behind these links aren't known, but there are theories about what could be going on. One suggests that defects in DNA repair mechanisms impair cellular division processes in ways that affect sperm production and increase the likelihood of cancer developing. Another theory points to a hormonal explanation, namely that men with infertility have lower circulating testosterone levels than fertile men do. Low testosterone levels in men can increase their risk of developing cardiovascular disease and set the stage for muscle loss, increased abdominal fat, weakened bones, erectile dysfunction, and memory, mood, and energy problems, circumstances that many men desperately want to avoid. Researchers also hypothesize that in utero disruptions in genetic programming can impair not only genital development, but can also affect the man's health later in life. It's a tangled web of contributing factors indeed. Whether it's called a sixth vital sign, a harbinger, or a fundamental biomarker, this much is clear. A man's semen quality can tell him something about his future health risks. On the upside, men with high-quality semen have a longer life expectancy and a decreased incidence of a wide range of diseases compared to their peers with infertility. According to a study of 40,000 Danish men who were followed for up to 40 years, simply put, 
having an abundant sperm supply is associated with better health for men. Virility on multiple fronts. Unfortunate domino effects for women. For women, there are also strong associations between reproductive health and future well-being. Those with PCOS often have insulin resistance or diabetes and suffer from metabolic syndrome, which increases their risk for developing cardiovascular disease in addition to decreasing fertility. Women who start menstruating early, before age 12, may have a 23% higher risk of dying young from any cause than their peers whose first periods arrive later, probably because early puberty in girls is associated with an increased risk of developing obesity, type 2 diabetes, asthma, and breast cancer. Anovulation, which is the failure of the ovary to release an egg during a given menstrual cycle, has been linked with an increased risk of uterine cancer, while endometriosis and tubal factor infertility could increase a woman's risk for ovarian cancer. Women who are diagnosed with infertility are also at higher risk for hormone-sensitive cancers. This makes sense given that they don't get a break from the hormonal ups and downs associated with menstruation. Pregnancy offers women a nine-month hiatus from their periods, plus another month or so after giving birth if they're not breastfeeding, and up to six months or longer if they are breastfeeding exclusively. This is significant because uninterrupted menstrual cycles, as in never getting pregnant, means nonstop exposure to ovarian hormonal fluctuations, which stimulate cell growth in the breasts, ovaries, and endometrium. To a lesser extent, this is also true of women who have their first child late in life, or never have a child. A woman who has her first child at age 40 or later has a fourfold greater risk of developing breast cancer compared to a woman who has a child at age 15, largely because the older women have gone decades without getting an extended holiday from hormonal stimulation. In a 2019 study involving more than 64,000 women who were diagnosed with or tested or treated for infertility, and more than 3 million women who were seen for routine gynecological care, researchers from Stanford University sought to investigate whether similar risks apply to other cancers by tracking the women's health over several years. It turned out that the women who were seen for infertility testing and treatment had an 18% higher risk of developing uterine, ovarian, thyroid, liver, and pancreatic cancers, as well as leukemia. Interestingly, among the women who were classified as infertile yet became pregnant and gave birth to a child during the follow-up period, the risks of uterine and ovarian cancers dropped down to match those of their naturally fertile counterparts. In addition, the lifestyle and chemical-related stressors that can alter a man's or woman's reproductive health can also modify the expression of his or her genetic code and possibly affect future generations of their families. Tinkering with the Master Plan how might these hand-me-down effects work? That's the domain of a field called epigenetics, which literally means on top of genetics. The term, coined by British scientist Conrad Waddington in 1942, 
refers to the study of biological mechanisms that can change gene function and expression, for example, by switching particular genes on and off, or dialing their expression up or down, without altering the underlying sequence of DNA. In the span of several decades, the field has blossomed and provided new insights into how a person's environment, including his or her exposure to certain chemicals and lifestyle practices, can influence the expression of certain genes, which can then alter his or her risk of developing specific health conditions. Here's where things get complicated. Some scientists use the word epigenetics to refer to chemical or physical changes that affect gene regulation without altering the essential DNA sequence. By contrast, others believe the term should apply only to changes that are heritable, meaning passed from one cell to another or from one organism to another. If you're finding it difficult to wrap your mind around all this, you're in good company. As Siddhartha Mukherjee, M.D., noted in The Gene, An Intimate History, the shifting meaning of the word epigenetics has created enormous confusion within the field. Here's the gist of what you need to know. Your genes and your environment can interact in ways that can change how your genes are used or expressed. That alone is amazing enough. But here's the really astounding part. The food we eat, the air we breathe, the products we use, and the emotions we feel have the potential to influence not only how our genes are expressed, but also how those of our unborn descendants might behave in the future. That's right. Our lifestyles and environments can have ripple effects on the health and development of our unborn children and grandchildren through mechanisms that foster cellular memory and can be maintained across several generations. Such effects are considered transgenerational when they're seen in a generation that was not directly exposed to the stimulus in question, such as the sons and daughters of a parent who was exposed. When the effects extend to the second, third, or fourth generation after the generation that had the initial exposure, then they're deemed to be multi-generational. Together, these passed-along influences can be considered intergenerational an all-encompassing term I prefer for simplicity's sake. An analogy. Imagine that a documentary was being made about the development and maturation of your body. The genes you carry would provide the script, outlining key actions or events that would be featured in the film. Epigenetic changes would reflect alterations or tweaks a director might make to how the script is performed. In this case, by causing certain sets of genes to be turned on, expressed, or turned off, inhibited, or silenced. In other words, the director, epigenetic changes, has the power to yell, action, or cut, or to suggest putting a different spin on a particular event. In real life, epigenetic changes, which are part of the normal development, health, and survival of the species, can influence a person's risk of disease throughout the lifespan. When someone is exposed to a particular stimulus, whether it's a toxic chemical, intense stress, or a certain dietary factor, this influence can elicit epigenetic modifications that can have lasting effects on the person's development, metabolism, and health, and sometimes even the development and health of that person's offspring. 
We know of three primary epigenetic mechanisms, which I'll explain here, and others will probably be identified down the road. One of the best characterized is DNA methylation, a chemical process that adds a methyl group, a common structural unit of organic compounds, to DNA. DNA methylation, which helps regulate major cellular processes, essentially acts like a switch that dials the activity of genes up or down by modifying a gene's interactions with the machinery within a cell's nucleus. In another epigenetic mechanism, histones, which are proteins that serve as a spool around which DNA is wrapped, can be modified through specific chemical processes. A particular histone modification can then precisely calibrate gene expression. A third epigenetic mechanism involves RNA, short for ribonucleic acid, which is present in all living cells and plays essential roles in the coding, regulation, and expression of genes. The RNA silencing mechanism is a modification during which the expression of one or more genes is downregulated or suppressed by small non-coding stretches of RNA. Without getting into the weeds on non-coding RNA function, suffice it to say that these RNA molecules can alter gene expression and play a key role in biological processes. One way or another, all of these epigenetic mechanisms act as switches, modulators, or tags, which serve as a kind of cellular memory that can change the epigenetic landscape. These changes are akin to editing and rewriting the script for your life story. Now imagine that someone is using different colored highlighters to mark up different parts of that script, to indicate which parts need to be read most carefully, say orange, and which ones aren't as important, say blue. The color coding system can change throughout your lifetime in response to environmental influences, so that a part that was once blue becomes orange or vice versa. In addition, some lines or stage directions can be passed down to your next of kin, just as some highlighted portions of a document still show up as either a color or a shade when it is photocopied. This is the essence of how epigenetics works. Undesirable Legacies your life story may not stop with you, however, and that may be the most astounding part. These epigenetic effects can influence a child's risk of developing asthma or allergies, obesity, heart or kidney disease, some neurological disorders, and some reproductive abnormalities. It has long been recognized that there's an intergenerational transmission from mothers to children of exposure to chemicals, metals, pharmaceuticals, stress and trauma, and other detrimental factors, which makes sense intuitively since a mother's body is a baby's first home. Increasingly, research is suggesting that the same is true of men. Here's one area where this has been illustrated. A parent's experience with war, trauma, or severe stress can have hand-me-down effects on the mental health of his or her offspring, even if the children don't grow up hearing stories of these horrors. The descendants of trauma survivors seem to inherit a biological memory of the hardship their parents endured, namely, through alterations in certain genes and levels of circulating stress hormones. According to Rachel Yehuda, Ph.D., 
a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. In one study, Yehuda and her colleagues interviewed adults with at least one parent who was a Holocaust survivor and adults whose parents hadn't been exposed to the Holocaust or experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Then, they took blood samples from the participants to compare methylation of a gene that's involved in the stress response, GR1F, and cortisol levels in response to being given low-dose dexamethasone an anti-inflammatory drug. They found that subjects whose parents had experienced PTSD had alterations in methylation of this particular gene, a sign of trauma-induced epigenetic modifications. This may sound like a lot of technical gobbledygook, but these alterations can have significant consequences for later generations. Another of Yehuda's studies, including Holocaust offspring, found that a mother's PTSD significantly enhanced her child's risk for developing PTSD, while a father's PTSD significantly elevated his son's or daughter's risk for depression. Whether these effects are ultimately due to the parent's unpredictable behavior or epigenetic changes in a father's sperm has yet to be determined. But the idea that traumatic experiences can affect DNA in ways that are transmitted to subsequent generations, like molecular scars, is an upsetting family legacy. On the male side of the family tree, research involving mice found that the offspring of males who had significant stress before breeding displayed substantial alterations in stress reactivity of the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal (HPA) axis which controls a person's or animal's response to stress, in this case, due to epigenetic reprogramming. This is especially noteworthy because altered stress reactivity is a prominent feature of PTSD, so it seems that a father's prior PTSD can become his child's PTSD through inherited molecular mechanisms. Taken together, these studies lend credence to the theory that psychological trauma, or extreme stress, can induce epigenetic changes that can be passed down from either parent or both and have real-life consequences for their children. The Multigenerational Digestive Tract Another example of the intergenerational transmission of health effects, large fluctuations in the availability of food, from too little to plenty or the other way around during grandparents' early years can have surprising trickle-down effects on subsequent generations. Research from Sweden found that if a paternal grandmother experienced drastic changes in her access to food from one year to the next up until puberty, her son's daughters, her granddaughters, had a two-and-a-half times higher risk of dying from cardiovascular disease as an adult. Similarly, Babies exposed to nutritional deficiencies while in the womb during a severe famine in the Netherlands, known as the Dutch Famine, or Hunger Winter, of 1944-45, were found to be at increased risk of becoming obese and of developing schizophrenia as adults. By contrast, women who were children ages 2-6 to six and experienced severe hunger during the Dutch Famine have been found to experience natural menopause earlier, compared to their peers who weren't exposed to the famine. Dads aren't off the hook when it comes to diet. 
Studies have found that children conceived by undernourished fathers were heavier and in some instances more obese than children born to fathers and mothers who were well-nourished before conception. By age 9, the sons of fathers who started smoking before age 11 have a higher risk of becoming overweight or obese. Interestingly, while the sons of fathers who took up the smoking habit at an early age have a higher body mass index, the same isn't true of the father's daughters. Another body of research in male mice suggests that the sons of fathers who have a folic acid deficiency or who have the highest dose of folic acid supplementation have lower sperm counts. In other words, on the dad's side of the equation, there's no question that these paternal lineage effects are transmitted via sperm. Parental advisories. Unsurprisingly, given all this, the lifestyle factors and environmental chemicals that a man or woman is exposed to can have reverberating effects on the reproductive health of generations to come. None of these potential epigenetic influences have slam-dunk effects, however. They don't occur in every single child who is born to parents who've experienced particular exposures that can induce epigenetic changes. But they can theoretically occur in any given child, and exposures in past generations make it more likely that these changes will happen. That said, when these epigenetic changes do occur, just how many generations are affected by these exposures remains a matter of ongoing debate and research. It isn't clear, for example, whether the damaging effects of a particular exposure are perpetuated in both male and female children, as well as third or fourth generations of descendants. The answer seems to depend on the culprit in question. As an example, let's take a look at DES, which you'll recall was prescribed to millions of pregnant women until the 1970s because it was believed to prevent miscarriages. First of all, the treatment didn't prevent miscarriages. In fact, it increased the risk. Worse, it increased the incidence of certain reproductive disorders in the male and female offspring who were exposed to the drug in the womb. Most of the research on prenatal exposure to DES has focused on the reproductive effects in girls and women, and there are plenty, as you've seen. Less well-known are the potential effects in the boys and men whose mothers took DES during pregnancy, and these are significant. Not only can in utero exposure to DES increase the male baby's risk of having undescended testicles, hypospadias, misplaced urethral openings, epididymal cysts, and infection or inflammation of the testicles, but these boys also have higher chances of having micropenises, abnormally small but normally structured penises. Whether there's also an association with decreased sperm counts or testicular cancer isn't clear because research on the effects of DES in sons hasn't been extensive. The real surprise. Some evidence suggests that the sons of females who were exposed to DES while in the womb, the grandsons of the expectant mothers who were exposed to DES, have an increased incidence of two genital abnormalities, undescended testicles and an abnormally small penis. In these instances, the DES damage can trickle down two or three generations, 
an effect that could be the result of epigenetic changes that are transmitted to subsequent generations through men. Here's an example of how these effects can unfold with current chemical exposures and reproductive development. In a 2017 study, researchers examined phthalate levels in the urine of men undergoing in vitro fertilization, IVF, and found that several of these phthalates were associated with changes in sperm DNA through what's called DNA methylation that resulted in poorer embryo quality and a lower chance of successful implantation. The phthalates affected the genes that can influence a male baby's reproductive development and eventually a grown man's semen quality and fertility status, that is to say, whether or not he can have children. There is also evidence that a male's exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals can travel farther down the family tree, affecting reproductive development in successive generations of males. On the female side, research also has found that exposure to environmental toxins can lead to the intergenerational inheritance of PCOS or a premature reduction in the pool of viable eggs, a.k.a. diminished ovarian reserve. Unfortunately, it gets worse because it appears that given the increasing number and volume of endocrine-disrupting chemicals and other toxins in our world, the damaging effects could be additive over time in descendants of the originally exposed person. In studies involving male mice, researchers at Washington State University sought to investigate the potential for this augmenting effect. So they tested the cumulative effects of the male mouse's prenatal and then his postnatal exposure to estrogenic chemicals, not just in one generation, but also in three successive generations, and compared the severity of the effects across the various generations. They found that exposure to the endocrine-disrupting chemicals affected both the reproductive tract development and sperm production in the male mice that were exposed. No surprise there. More startling was the finding that when subsequent generations were exposed to these endocrine-disrupting chemicals, the effects of the originally reported changes in sperm-producing cells were amplified. In addition, the incidence and severity of reproductive tract abnormalities, such as kinking or collapse of the vas deferens, which conveys sperm from the testicles to the urethra, and testicular fibrosis, which can lead to male infertility, were increasingly observed, suggesting an additive effect. The impacts were worse in the second generation compared to the first generation, and worse still in the third. That the damage got worse and worse as more generations were exposed suggests that male sensitivity to environmental estrogens is increased in successive generations that are exposed to common endocrine-disrupting chemicals, leading to a progressive decrease in sperm counts over multiple generations, a phenomenon that environmental scientist Pete Myers refers to as a male fertility death spiral. This may sound like nothing more than a doomsday-themed video game or movie, but the possibility that the damage is getting worse and worse as subsequent generations are exposed to EDCs is beyond frightening. Where will the harm end? Revising our reproductive programs. Epigenetic and intergenerational effects such as these are significant and worrisome for humans and animals alike. 
After all, the evidence suggests that once these changes occur, the revised program for the future development of cells and body systems in successive generations could become permanent. It's as if the new pattern becomes etched in stone and cannot be altered or erased for either that particular man or possibly his future male heirs. These findings shed light on the big revelation of my own research, that male sensitivity to environmental hormones is increased in successive generations of exposure, from a father to a son to a grandson, might explain the continued decline in sperm counts we saw over subsequent generations. As these second, third, and fourth generation relatives are subjected to these harmful environmental influences, they become more sensitive to their effects, and there could be inherited DNA damage as well, which is yet another additive factor that can create a vicious cycle. Where in a family's lineage these damaging effects will stop, nobody knows. There is, however, a glimmer of hope that some epigenetic effects may be reversible. For example, it's theoretically plausible that the propensity to become obese could be altered by changing the environment in the womb and the person's lifestyle in adulthood. Research in mice found that dietary supplementation with folic acid or genistein during pregnancy negates DNA hypomethylation and can counteract the damaging effects on the unborn pup of exposure to bisphenol A, an industrial chemical that's used to harden plastic. Think baby bottles. That's the biological equivalent of clicking the undo function on your computer and erasing the error you just made. But it isn't yet known to what extent future generations of human beings could be rescued from undesirable epigenetic changes or which effects are potentially reversible. Whether someone is lucky enough to escape this epigenetic cascade of unwanted intergenerational influences appears to be a matter of chance. Reproductive abnormalities, fertility challenges, and a higher risk of chronic diseases aren't acquired traits that any parent wants to pass along to his or her children. But our modern world has made it increasingly difficult to avoid these risks. That's why scientists from around the world are issuing calls to action, such as protecting the food supply and reducing exposure to chemical cocktails in the environment, to protect the fertility and reproductive health of future generations. 9. Imperiling the planet. It's not just about humans. Soiling our nests. In the North Pacific Ocean lies an enormous trash vortex, a convergence of more than 87,000 tons of floating debris, including plastic particles, chemical sludge, and other fragments of litter. This massive detritus has come to be known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Rather than being a discrete mass like an island, this swirling maelstrom of refuse is more like a diffuse galaxy of garbage that has grown to be about twice the size of Texas. It poses a danger to wildlife, since the debris often ends up in creatures' stomachs or wrapped around their necks. Of the 1.5 million albatross that inhabit Midway Atoll near the garbage patch, the vast majority have plastic particles in their digestive systems, and approximately one-third of their chicks die. 
The floating debris absorbs organic pollutants in the seawater. Then fish and other marine life consume these toxin-containing pieces of plastic. When humans eat these fish, we ingest microparticles of these toxic chemicals, another harmful trickle-down effect in our ecosystem. This is hardly an isolated occurrence. There's also a tide of plastic waste along what was once the idyllic coastline of the tiny Honduran island Roatan, as well as a nearby series of trash islands composed of garbage, particularly styrofoam and plastic, along with seaweed. In 2017, a floating mass of tiny plastic pieces larger than Mexico was discovered in the South Pacific. Meanwhile, in the Atlantic Ocean, extreme concentrations of microplastic pollution have been found in the Sargasso Sea. And in 2019, researchers spotted a floating mass of plastic waste, dozens of miles long, between the islands of Corsica and Elba in the Mediterranean Sea. In each of these locations, sea creatures are literally swimming in trash and plastic chemical soups of one kind or another. The United Nations Ocean Conference estimated that the oceans may contain more weight in plastics than fish by the year 2050. Intentionally or not, human beings are treating the planet's oceans like a garbage dump. The debris-strewn oceans aren't the only casualties of our throwaway society, and these masses of detritus aren't just unsightly. They're also harmful to the environment, especially given that plastics, in particular, take thousands of years to decay. By some estimates, plastic is killing more than 100,000 sea turtles and birds per year, whether it's because these creatures ingest them or become entangled in them. Meanwhile, the chemicals from plastics contaminate fish and enter the food chain, which means they can be passed from one species to another and affect human health, too. As the Environmental Protection Agency notes, wildlife also can act as sentinels for human health. Abnormalities or declines detected in wildlife populations can sound an early warning bell for people. But it's not just about us, because the health and vibrancy of other species matter, to them and to the health and integrity of the planet in general. The difference is, other species haven't chosen to bring these chemicals into their lives and their habitats. Humans have done it for them, which means they've been innocent victims of humans' reckless and feckless behavior. As you've heard, even when specific chemicals are banned, they can persist in the environment for years, where they can harm other creatures. These persistent chemicals include heavy metals such as lead and mercury, as well as arsenic, PCBs, DDT, dioxin, and others, all of which are known or suspected endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs. And as is the case for humans, other species are often simultaneously exposed to numerous EDCs, which creates the potential for harmful additive effects. But it's not just a one-plus-one proposition. These effects can interact in ways that make the combination, or the whole effect, even worse than the sum of the separate parts. After all, phthalates are in plastics, PVC pipes, home furnishings, and personal care products. Phenols are in antiseptics, disinfectants, 
and medical products, among others, while perfluorooctanoic acid, PFOA, is in carpets, fabric protectors, stain repellents, and Teflon pots and pans. This continuous exposure may be why these non-persistent chemicals can easily be measured in urine and have been found in a majority of people in Western populations. While other species don't use these products, they are exposed to them through byproducts formed during chemical manufacturing and combustion, global transport of these chemicals through ocean and air currents, electronics recycling and garbage, and other processes. As the use of some persistent organic pollutants has decreased, the use of non-persistent compounds has increased. Yet, both classes still pose risks to reproductive organ development and can cause adverse neurological, endocrine, genetic, and systemic effects in humans and other species. Body Burdens in Animals Unfortunately, these ubiquitous environmental chemicals have taken a toll on the animal kingdom in many different ways. A recent study found that 88% of biopsies from bottlenose dolphins from the northern Adriatic Sea had PCB concentrations above the toxicity threshold for physiological effects in marine mammals, and 66% had concentrations above the threshold for reproductive impairment. Meanwhile, exposure to organochlorine pesticides, PCBs, and brominated flame retardants had an adverse impact on the reproductive function of Baltic gray seals, including a high incidence of uterine fibroids in females, and led to marked declines in their population. Male polar bears in East Greenland with high fat tissue concentrations of persistent organic pollutants, including organochlorine pesticides and PCBs, were found to have reduced testosterone levels, unusually short penises, and smaller than normal testicles. There's even a disorder called imposex, which causes female sea snails to develop male sex organs such as a penis and vas deferens. The cause? Exposure to certain marine pollutants, particularly tributiltin, TBT a highly toxic chemical that had been used extensively to prevent the growth of marine organisms on the hulls of large ships. The point is, the effects of the chemicals we have unleashed into the world are vast and far-reaching, endangering the reproductive health of numerous species and possibly their very survival. Case in point, in a series of studies, University of California, Berkeley, developmental endocrinologist Tyrone Hayes, Ph.D., investigated the effects of atrazine, an herbicide that's used primarily on corn, soybeans, and other crops in the Midwest and around the world, on the sexual development of wild leopard frogs. He found that exposure to atrazine had a feminizing effect on male frogs leading to gonad abnormalities such as the presence of eggs in their testicles and testosterone levels that are lower than in normal female frogs. Toads have been found to have similarly dysfunctional reproductive responses to various EDCs. Given these reproductive abnormalities, is it any wonder that frogs and toads are undergoing a precipitous population decline throughout the world? One of the most dramatic and widely reported examples of this kind of chemical impact on wildlife came from central Florida. For many years, Lake Apopka, 
one of the largest freshwater lakes in Florida, at 12,500 hectares, was among the most contaminated lakes in the state. This was due to pesticide use and agricultural activities around the lake, a nearby sewage treatment facility, and a 1980 major pesticide spill of a mixture of dicofol, DDT and its metabolites, and sulfuric acid from the former Tower Chemical Company, which was adjacent to the lake. These pesticides can act as estrogens, binding to and activating estrogen receptors and inducing cellular growth that's estrogen-dependent. In the 1990s, University of Florida wildlife biologist Lou Gillette, Jr., Ph.D., and his colleagues compared the reproductive development in juvenile alligators from Lake Apopka and those from a clean control lake, Lake Woodruff, in central Florida. Going out on the lakes at night in teams and airboats, the researchers would catch baby gators and take various body or body fluid measurements, or they would collect eggs from nests during the day. They found that at six months of age, baby female alligators from Lake Apopka had blood estrogen levels that were nearly twice that of the female alligators from uncontaminated Lake Woodruff. And it was clearly not because the female alligators were taking estrogen of their own volition. The Apopka female alligators also had altered reproductive tract development, including more abnormalities in their eggs and ovarian follicles, similar to what happens with PCOS in human females. It wasn't just the females who were having reproductive troubles. The young male alligators from Lake Apopka had their own set of problems, particularly abnormally small penises and poorly organized seminiferous tubules, where sperm cells germinate and mature before being transported, in the testicles. What's more, the Lake Apopka male alligators had significantly lower testosterone concentrations, levels that were three times lower than those of the male alligators from Lake Woodruff and comparable to those of the female alligators from Lake Woodruff. Not surprisingly, these abnormalities had the potential to significantly thwart normal sexual maturation and the alligators' prospects of successfully reproducing. Even in the wild on Lake Apopka, the hatching success rate of alligators was only 5%, compared to the 85% success rate it should be in a less contaminated lake. These discoveries were disturbing in their own right, but they also provided telling insights about the risks of human exposures. Alligators have a similar lifespan to that of humans and can also reproduce for decades. So these researchers were able to learn about the effects of pollutants on reproduction that could be relevant to humans, even though we don't literally swim in a toxic soup. But such adverse effects from exposures to chemicals are hardly limited to creatures residing in bodies of water. On land, Florida panthers that were exposed to high concentrations of DDE, mercury, and PCBs were found to have lower sperm density, motility, and semen volume, and higher numbers of abnormally shaped sperm compared to other panther populations. In Canada, Researchers obtained 161 mink carcasses from commercial trappers in the provinces of British Columbia and Ontario between 1998 and 2006, 
so that they could examine the effects of EDCs, including organochlorine pesticides, PCBs, and polybrominated diphenyl ethers, PBDEs, on the male's reproductive development. The researchers found a significant relationship between DDE levels in the livers of adult mink and their penis length and size, most likely because DDE is antiandrogenic. Furry creatures were just as likely to suffer the reproductive fallout from these chemicals as those with scales. The Dramatic Fall of Insects and Birds In recent years, we've been hearing dire warnings about what's being called an insect apocalypse. A 2017 study from Germany found that the country's nature reserves had experienced a 75% decline in flying insects over the previous 27 years. In coastal areas of California, the population of western monarch butterflies plunged by 86% from 2017 to 2018. In Puerto Rico, the abundance of arthropods, including insects that have exoskeletons, such as beetles, as well as spiders and centipedes, has been declining at a disturbing rate, and so have the populations of the lizards, frogs, and birds that eat them. Whether or not you appreciate insects or fear them, the simple reality is, we cannot survive without insects. As the American biologist, naturalist, and author E.O. Wilson famously noted, if all mankind were to disappear, the world would regenerate back to the rich state of equilibrium that existed 10,000 years ago. If insects were to vanish, the environment would collapse into chaos. Insects pollinate plants and trees and provide food for birds and other animals. Cows couldn't survive without grass, and grass wouldn't exist if beneficial insects didn't provide a natural form of pest control for those insects that damage grass and help with the breakdown of organic matter so nutrients can be returned to the soil. Some species of fish wouldn't exist if they didn't have insects to eat, and chickens depend on insect-pollinated plants for the seeds and nuts they feed on. Insects are an integral part of the circle of life. Among the suspected reasons for the demise of various insect populations, climate change, and the widespread use of herbicides and pesticides. The global decline in the populations and diversity of insects has the potential for significant ripple effects on food webs, the interconnected food chains within an ecological community, and hence the survival of various ecosystems. Since 1970, North America has lost nearly 3 billion birds, a 29% reduction across hundreds of species from warblers and finches to swallows and sparrows, according to a 2019 study. This is a crisis because birds also are a critical part of both the natural food chain and the planet's ecological integrity. While the degradation of high-quality habitats is the single greatest cause of the bird declines, according to Michael Parr, president of the American Bird Conservancy, pesticides are a contributing factor. Since DDT was banned or phased out, another pernicious generation of pesticides called neonicotinoids has been introduced. As Parr wrote in a September 2019 opinion piece in the Washington Post, 
Neonics are used to inoculate plants against insects. They remove both harmful and beneficial insects. If you use a billion pounds of insect poison annually, as we do on the American landscape, you are going to wind up with fewer and fewer insects, then fewer birds. This is already happening off the northwest coast of Iceland, where things are uncharacteristically quiet these days. In recent years, colonies of puffins, kittiwakes, terns, and other bird species have been dying off or disappearing, and so have their chipper choruses. The numbers of penguin-like thick-billed murres dropped 7% per year between 2005 and 2008, while the populations of common murres and Atlantic puffins decreased considerably between 1999 and 2005, according to a 2016 report from the UN. It's not just that they're dying off at a faster rate. They're not reproducing at the rate they once did either. A major reason for this unfortunate demise? Our high-carbon lifestyles are turning up the ocean's temperatures, changing their chemistry, pollution loads, and food webs, and jeopardizing the health of various forms of marine life. Levels of forever chemicals such as PCBs and brominated flame retardants are taking a toll on these populations as well. The plight of these seabirds is sounding a warning bell throughout the world that more patterns like this are likely to be seen in the future. Once again, we humans created these fatal and fertility-altering effects. Hijacking the mating game Meanwhile, some environmental contaminants have been found to alter the mating and reproductive behavior of certain species. We've seen alterations in courtship and pairing behavior in white ibises that were exposed to methylmercury, the most toxic form of mercury, in Florida. One study found a significant increase in homosexuality in male ibises that were exposed to methylmercury, a result the researchers attribute to a demasculinizing pattern of estrogen and testosterone expression in the males. Sexual behavior in birds, as in humans, is strongly influenced by circulating levels of steroid hormones, including testosterone. We are also seeing changes in reproductive behavior among female freshwater fish that are exposed to androgenic endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Simply put, these female fish spend less time associating with their male counterparts. In other instances, both sexes can have their sexual behavior hijacked by environmental exposure to EDC chemicals. A case in point, trenbolone acetate is an anabolic steroid, similar in action to testosterone, that is widely used in some parts of the world to increase muscle mass in livestock. It used to be popular in the bodybuilding community, but it has been banned from human use. Unfortunately, Several metabolites of trenbolone acetate have been found in aquatic systems that are near animal feedlots. Researchers have found that fish that are exposed to even low concentrations of this androgenic chemical can experience disruptions to their reproductive development and function. In particular, female fish become masculinized during their early development, and adult females can experience detrimental effects on their fertility. In another wrinkle, 
A study from Australia found that short-term exposure to trenbolone altered the courtship and sexual behavior of male guppies, as well as the female guppies' receptivity to the male's sexual advances. Other dangers in the water. In the Western world, people expect their drinking water to be safe, which is why the 2016 lead contamination water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and the more recent one in Newark, New Jersey, elicited such strong public and political outrage. But an often overlooked reality is that, in addition to the possible presence of toxic metals, pharmaceutical drugs, including oral contraceptives and other hormones, may be lurking in our water supply, as well as in waterways that are home to fish and other creatures. Regrettably, the chemicals in these drugs end up in waterways after being excreted from the human body or when unused medications are flushed down the toilet. These drugs can also enter our waterways through manufacturing waste, animal excretion, runoff from animal feeding operations, or leaching from municipal landfills, according to a report from the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC. What's more, medications excreted in human urine, feces, and bathwater can migrate from sewers into oceans, rivers, lakes, and streams, where they can harm various forms of wildlife. As a result, it's hardly surprising that drug-polluted waterways are now home to a variety of intersex fish, namely, males that produce eggs. Or that fish and shrimp living in water that contains traces of antidepressants show alterations in their normal behavior, such as staying at the water's surface or swimming toward light, either of which can make them vulnerable to predators. Meanwhile, fathead minnows that have been exposed to antidepressants and anticonvulsants in water have exhibited neurological changes, some of which resemble autism-like disorders. Facing the messes we've made This should give you a pretty clear picture of what's going on and what's going wrong with other species throughout the world. When the chemicals that we humans have created seep into the environment, they can take a toll on the health, development, behavior, and even survival of other creatures. The bottom line? We're essentially dosing the entire planet when we take these drugs or dispose of them improperly. Other creatures didn't sign up for this. Making matters worse, the chemicals that are altering our reproductive development and function, as well as that of the alligators, frogs, and other species, are largely coming from industries that are damaging our climate as well. As a panel of 100 endocrine disruption and climate change scientists wrote in a 2016 commentary in Le Monde, many of the actions needed to reduce the burden of endocrine disruptors will also help in the fight against climate change. Most man-made chemicals are derived from fossil fuel byproducts manufactured by the petrochemical industry. These chemicals compromise male reproductive health and contribute to cancer risks. Already, there is concern that exposure to EDCs may hinder the ability of other species to adapt to environmental changes that are driven by climate change, given that EDCs alter hormonal programming and function. As Norwegian scientist Bjorn Munro Jensen, who studies how environmental pollutants affect animals, wrote, 
when taking into consideration the long-range transport of EDCs into the Arctic ecosystem, the combination of EDCs and climate change may be a worst-case scenario for Arctic mammals and seabirds. In the past, the presence of chemicals in the environment was regulated primarily on the basis of what causes cancer, but the levels that threaten reproductive health are usually lower. This means that regulating chemicals on the basis of cancer risk can miss significant reproductive risks. For example, when the US EPA analyzed fish tissue from 540 river sites across the country, the screening value for non-cancer endpoints, including reproduction, was four times higher than that for cancer. The concentration of 21 PCBs was found to exceed the level considered to pose an increased risk of cancer in humans in 48% of the samples. This likely means that the thresholds for reproductive damage have already been met. Findings like this suggest that it's time for a new set of regulatory standards, ones that will protect reproductive development and function for all living creatures. Ultimately, whether it's through our lifestyles or the chemical contaminants we have developed and unleashed, we're imperiling the world in which we live. Where the effects will stop is unknowable, unless we take crucial steps to reverse the exposures to chemicals in our midst and the burdens these chemicals are having on other living creatures. While it's true that environmentally induced reproductive disorders in other species are important sentinels for men's and women's reproductive health, the sexual development and functionality of other species matter in their own right. This isn't an us-or-them proposition. We're all surrounded by the same toxic stew. There's simply no place on the planet that's safe from these chemicals. We created these problems, albeit unwittingly, so it's up to us to come up with the solutions, as you'll see in subsequent chapters. Although limited so far, Government actions to ban or restrict the use of potentially harmful chemicals in order to reduce exposure to them have already contributed to decreases in the frequency of certain disorders in wildlife, as the 2012 WHO report acknowledged. For example, after a decline in the environmental concentrations of PCBs and organochlorine pesticides, the populations of Baltic Sea seals which had previously had a high incidence of fibroids associated with exposure to these chemicals, has been rebounding. Since TBT was banned in 2008 from use in marine anti-fouling paints, the populations of marine gastropods have been recovering throughout the world, and in 2017, no signs of ambiguous genitalia were found among sea snails in any of the monitoring stations along the Norwegian coastline. These are important examples of how cleaning up the environment can remove threats to reproductive development. Unlike other species, we, as human beings, have the choice and the ability to take steps to reverse these harmful influences. Altering this downward trajectory is likely to require drastic changes in our collective lifestyle and our regulatory processes for chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and consumer products. The challenge may seem akin to turning around the Titanic, but it can be done, and it's worth the effort, because the health, vitality, and longevity of the human race, other species, and the planet depend on it. 
context of white supremacy. So that is our first audio segment on Countdown. We'll pick up on Chapter 10, Eminent Social Insecurities, Demographic Deviations, and the Unraveling of Cultural Institutions. Yee. This, I, I mentioned the census already today, right? Pay attention. Looking forward to Chapter 10. So the number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Email is untiljustice at gmail.com. I'll do the emails first and then we'll check folks who dialed in email number one. Uh, So, so, so interesting. So, okay. The first person wrote in, she says, uh, Hey Gus, I found this article. I wanted to share with you. It's about a woman suing her mother's doctor for not advising her to take folic acid during her mother's pregnancy. This caused the child to have spina bifida. This case was ruled in London and the woman actually may win millions of dollars. It seems to relate to the book countdown that the book club is reading. This is in the New York post uh, from yesterday, December one. I had highlighted folic acid because that came up uh, in the text last week, but it came up again this week uh, as well. uh, It was mentioned last week uh, in chapter six uh, in the text. It was on the positive side, an adequate intake of folic acid is not only important during pregnancy since it can prevent neural tube defects such as spina bifida in the baby, but a higher intake before conception may also increase a woman's chance of becoming pregnant and decrease her risk of miscarriage how about that for folic acid but then it came up again this week uh, as I was reading in chapter 8 she writes another body of research in male mice suggests that the sons of fathers who have a folic acid deficiency or who have the highest dose of folic acid supplementation have lower sperm counts in other words on the dad side of the equation there's no question that these paternal lineage effects are transmitted via sperm folic acid I even looked just to verify what are foods rich in folic acid dark leafy greens get that spinach kale they even had broccoli in their peanuts but plant-based diet generally you would be doing pretty well anywho let's see I'll read a little bit more of one other email and then check to the callers let's see a different person wrote in one of our investors right greetings Gus uh, chapter 8 number one men with low sperm count diabetes 
heart disease, increased cancer risk for women, those with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, insulin resistance, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, cancer. Interesting how infertility affects more than just reproduction. For young people, it is a signal forecasting poor health later in life. I think that's about exactly the way that she wrote it, termed it in the book, I think. Number two, epigenetics, biological mechanisms that can change gene function and expression, the food we eat, the air we breathe, the products we use, and the emotions we feel influence our own genes. Also, how those of our unborn descendants, the field of epigenetics has been discussed on the cows. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the finding of increased shortening of the productive sequences on the ends of DNA telomeres causing, causing premature aging in black people thought to be the result of experiencing racism was discussed, discussed in the book club selection Cased Isabel Wilkerson's second worst book ever. In fact, we were reading Cased at this time exactly last year. Wacky. Number three, taken together, these studies tend lend credence to the theory that psychological trauma or extreme stress can induce epigenetic changes that can be passed down from either parent or both and have real life consequences for their children. Dr. Joy DeGruy discussed this in her theory, post-traumatic slave syndrome. She's been a guest on the cows many times, more than three. Uh, number four, uh, leading to a progressive decrease in sperm counts over multiple generations a phenomenon that environmental scientist Pete Myers refers to as a male fertility death spiral I wonder what this means given that sub-Saharan Africa is the only region expected to show continued population growth by the end of 2100 maybe further exacerbating fear of genetic annihilation absolutely I know Nigeria specifically we're not even talking about all of sub-Saharan Africa just Nigeria is supposed to have a billion people by 2100 and I have never heard anyone mention that in a celebratory manner certainly none of the white dominated media outlets it's just oh shock and peril how many niggers do we have to have uh, let's see chapter 9 the Great Pacific Patch, excuse me, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, Trash Islands, according to the Yale Scientific Journal, December 21, 2013. Garbage Patch is not a floating plastic island of debris, but tiny particles of plastic, most being less than 10 millimeters in diameter which are not seen on the ocean surface. The impacts are nevertheless negative, of course. Number two, the effects of the chemicals we have unleashed are vast, far-reaching, endangering reproductive health of numerous species and possibly their very survival. We should probably be replaced by people classified as white. I would agree. Uh, number three, many of the actions needed to reduce the burden of endocrine disruptors will also help in the fight against climate change. 
most man-made chemicals are derived from fossil fuel byproducts manufactured by the petrochemical industry. These chemicals compromise male reproductive health and contribute to cancer risks. The greatest contributors to climate change are thought to be so-called Western countries, white, and those expected to be most affected, Asian and African continent, non-white. So predictable how that goes. Uh, number four, we created these problems, albeit unwittingly. Is the word unwittingly accurate given Bubbly Creek, Aniston, Alabama and Monsanto Corporation and Flint, Michigan Water to name just a few. Amen. I had the same thought with the word unwittingly, although I didn't think of Bubbly Creek, although that would certainly be a pretty good one too. Uh, packing them in. Remember, we read that one uh, last year. Aniston, Alabama and Monsanto. That would be another good one as well for unwittingly. Really? This was accident. It's always accidental, right? It's always we didn't mean to do this. And this was not deliberate, willful. Uh, but yeah, that would be a great one, too. That was in Harriet A. Washington. A terrible thing to waste. Uh, one of the best books we have read at the beginning of 2020. I can't believe it's been almost two years, but that was really, really good. And she talked in detail about that. I believe Johnny Cochran was involved in that uh, case for the black people who were suffering down in uh, Alabama. The great legendary Johnny Cochran. Anywho, uh, the number again, star six one. If folks have thoughts, uh, observations to share, I can only say like, man, this has been like a sneaky let me take that back. How would I say it correctly? This has been. It has been a surprisingly enjoyable book. Uh, I'll go quick just so I can get to folks. Uh, not that I didn't expect to enjoy it. Just uh, it's so constructive. I feel like I've said that. So every session we've done for I've said it every time. Like, wow, this is so informative. They should teach this in school. They should teach this in school. <laughs> like it's got so many different things as people should know like, if they're trying to have children or just trying to be healthy, what you put in your body, what you eat, all that um, have very much enjoyed it. Glad we uh, picked this book. Uh, yeah, I was going to say more. Glad we picked this one. Hope folks are getting constructive information. Share if you think it's useful. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Uh, our caller in California. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers and listeners. Uh, I just want to share uh, a general quotation for thought, speech, and action from the, the code guy, the code book. Um, the system of white supremacy is a um, sewer system, and we're all swimming in it. And that, that quote is very evident, and um, the, the portions covered. Really, really um, incorrect and diabolical what has happened what white people have done to this planet. And yeah, I'll meet my line. Oh, go ahead. Hi, um, this is Mom. I also thought it was a really interesting reading this um, chapter because she really does try to imply that we all collectively as humans have some sort of control over manufacturing of these plastics and these other things that are contaminating the waters when it's obviously a specific group of people that have 
the most power and control over how these things are produced and how often they're produced. Um, I don't know how the regular black person has any power over, you know, um, the plastics industry or Monsanto, et cetera. So I thought that part was pretty interesting. Overall, I think that um, this chapter was really informative, especially really puts things in, into context when you think about how all of these changes are affecting, you know, um, fish and other animals. You really can't not think about how it affects, like, humans in terms of the ways that we're, like, you know, thinking about all these different genders and the way that people are becoming more, I guess, uh, fluid in their genders. I thought that was really interesting as well. Um, the last point I wanted to make was that um, even though the book is really informative, it, it, it's really hard to listen to because it almost feels like you're at war with where you live, like with the with the world pretty much because when she goes through all of the things that have um, toxins or can affect you, it's pretty much everything you use. You know, she said Teflon, household cleaning products, um, personal care products. And so it's like if you are not actively infor being informed of this, then you're pretty much actively killing yourself and your offspring without even knowing, which is really, really unfortunate because a lot of people are not going to research these type of things. And you really see that you really are in a covert war um, and you're losing, unfortunately. So that's all I have to say. I'll mute my line. Much obliged. Uh... Z's mom and uh, her attempted care mate as well. Good to hear from both of you all. Um, excellent points. Lots of this information. If you you know are not active and trying to seek out information about healthy products to have in your household and personal care products and what to eat and on down the line, test your water levels and all that, uh, you could absolutely or you will be. Uh, damaging yourself even more uh, and that's kind of what is intended within this system I just I'm reminded of uh, Dr. Cambon who number one who said uh, racists have made this entire planet a global cesspool uh, he also he consistently said we should make sure we stated correctly we are not engaged in war war is being waged against us most of us we have been so thoroughly confused we're not engaged or involved in a war at all. We're, uh, you know, just being bludgeoned on the battlefield on the way to get Cheetos and Funyuns and cheeseburgers and poisoned water and the like. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, it sounds like uh, the uh, prior uh, participants uh, basically picked up on what I think I uh, noticed in the reading. Uh, part A, there has been some uh, uh, constructive uh, information, uh, but <laughs> uh, the I haven't heard the... Uh, any uh, observation on something that cannot be avoided, the global system of racism, white supremacy. 
which is war in itself. Uh, the victims of this of this uh, issue, uh, the non-white ones especially, uh, we can uh, work and think and do uh, to uh, as much possible under this circumstances to do the best we can as far as eating, uh, exercise, thinking, so on and so forth. Uh, but as long as there is a global system of racist white supremacy, everything that is being said will continue to exist. Even, even with foods that are healthy, they're probably are wrapped in plastic, a lot of them. That plastic that is just thrown in the ocean and kills the birds and the Uh, and uh, that has to be included. It has to be included uh, into any, that meaning racism, white supremacy, and its power that it has over the earth in itself. Uh, I would like to have heard that portion uh, in this reading, uh, as opposed to some blanketed type of observation. If we people of the planet don't so on and so forth that sort of thing it's kind of like in my mind it's kind of like dismissing uh, some uh, important uh, issues that affect uh, the earth on a daily basis thank you much obliged retired firefighter in Florida Uh, now I don't know. Maybe she saved all of her commentary about the the elephant in the room, as they say, for chapter 10 in <laughs> social insecurities, demographic deviations. Maybe we just had to hold tight until chapter 10, but I don't know. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> we'll, that'd you know, be great. <laughs> we'll have to see. We'll, we'll keep reading. Maybe she'll surprise us, but uh, I, I won't hold my breath. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. That, that 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 is that is keen with a lot of quote unquote nice white people. That they leave off that in other words, someone of the magnitude of the author has to have an understanding of racism and white supremacy. That that is not a ignorant quote unquote white person. You know, when it comes to things beyond just on what she is talking about. You know, and uh, I, I, and I, I have to suspect that they leave it off purposely. That's it. Absolutely. I mean, even if you just came at it from the environmental racism, if you're going to bring up climate change and all that, they've had so many reports over the past year about the, uh, the where the disproportionate impact of climate change. And environmental racism on not they'll say like non-white communities or whatever but non-white people uh, that there's no way you could have all this information uh, about what's happening in the world and be ignorant about racism white supremacy and how that factors even the word we as a number of you all have talked about like really who is this we 
who is responsible for all this dumping of chemicals, Exxon and Shell. Is that black people in charge that are doing all that? Come on now. Uh, Let's see. Uh, So chapter eight. She writes these difficulties can affect a person's sex life, his or her ability to conceive the old fashioned way the person's self image and body esteem and his or her sexual relationship and emotional state. Now, all of this is just from these chemicals, pollution, not eating correctly, all of these different adverse uh, effects. Uh, and I said, one, the old fashioned way. That's what they talked about. Sexual intercourse. That's what it, it may be. Uh, she's even saying that in this book that within 30 years, it may be that most people have to use some some sort of uh, reproductive assistance in order to have a child, whether it's in vitro fertilization or egg freezing or whatever it is. You're going to need some kind of help because the plant will be so polluted and people uh, will have generations of all these poisons in their system and they just won't be working correctly. They might not even be interested in sex and all the rest that I mean. Wow. Um, let's see. Next, she says. Men with low sperm concentrations had a 30% increased risk of developing diabetes and a 48% increased risk of developing uh, isometric heart disease. I think one of our listeners noted on that section as well. Just I thought it was important. The correlation It's kind of the same thing I was saying about erectile dysfunction. Like there's a correlation between what's happening with your uh, genitalia, penis specifically, and overall health. Uh, that that can kind of be a signal like, whoa, there might be some other problems that are happening here. Might need to get on the ball. Um, let's see. Uh, I thought this was important as well because there's so many. She keeps talking about all of these endocrine disrupting chemicals uh, that disrupt uh, hormone levels for males and females and how that affects overall health and fertility. One and the same, really. Uh, which she says another theory points to a hormonal explanation, namely that men with infertility have lower circulating testosterone levels than fertile men do. Low testosterone levels in men can increase their risk of developing cardiovascular disease and set the stage for muscle loss, increased abdominal fat, which is really unhealthy, weakened bones erectile dysfunction there it is again and memory mood and energy problems circumstances that many men desperately want to avoid now she's had so much in the book about all of these hormone disruptors and chemicals and pharmaceutical uh, companies and dumping all the excess from that and everything it's it would be so much that is something else to think about uh, in terms of fertility uh, and all of the other health impacts that go around with having that, uh, having the hormones disrupted. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Epigenetics. We have discussed that quite a bit on the cows, uh, over the years, frequently talking about racism. Cause she talked about how stress can be one of the forms, uh, can have an epigenetic impact, uh, on your DNA. Uh, white supremacy racism and again that would be one to include white supremacy racism is the stress on the planet 
uh, for non-white people at least. Uh, let's see. When I got when she gets into all of the undesirable legacies and how things that your parents or grandparents experience, how that can end up impacting uh, their grandchildren's health for generations, multi-generational effect. That is right out of uh, Judith Finlayson's the title of her book. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, oh, I forgot. I can't believe it. I'm a victim. That's part of my trauma. Uh, what you. I'll look it up for a second. But anyway, Judith Finlayson's book where she talks about what you eat and how that impacts the health of your grandchildren. Um, it's uh, it's so important. Oh, yeah. You are what your grandparents ate. Why didn't I think of that? But talking about how it's not just you eating hot dogs or drinking the poisoned water in Flint uh, or what or just the stress of white supremacy racism that doesn't just compromise your health but this is the health of your offspring and it might even be a generational thing your grandchildren and on down the line depending on you know particularly what time these stressful events happened was this long range was this accumulative where you were just eating bad food or smoking cigarettes or consuming alcohol or lots of acute racism white supremacy having to you know see all kinds of craziness relative to that every day uh, where it can end up having a long-term impact. Uh, we talked about Dr. Joy DeGruy-Leary, but if it, I mean, there's so many ways why that's important. Uh, us getting cracking to solve this problem immediately, trying to do as much as we can to try to mitigate some of the damage uh, from racism, white supremacy, but just, wow, thinking beyond even your life cycle that all of these things that racist men, racist women are doing this is reaching, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years into the future. Even after you have departed, the damage is still being wrought. So taking it serious about solving this problem. Uh, let's see. Next, they say. Dads aren't off the hook either when it comes to diet. Studies have found that children conceived by undernourished fathers were heavier and in some instances more obese than children born to fathers and mothers who were well nourished before conception. By age nine, the sons of fathers who started smoking before age 11 had a higher risk of becoming overweight or obese. Again, this is right in uh, Judith and Layson's book. Uh, alcohol consumption, cigarette smoking, all of that is really uh, detrimental uh, to health. Uh, and particularly if you start smoking at a young age, uh, from some of the data that I've seen, generally black people start smoking later in life. White people start smoking earlier. Of course, that you know may have changed over the years, but generally that's what the data suggests. Um, again, I appreciate this book for having so much information on things that dads doing either before conception or throughout their life things that they do that can disrupt the ability to conceive and even the health uh, of that child uh, let's see folic acid again did I mention that one? Oh yeah I already got that one they mentioned uh, Stanford University for a lot of the research. Uh, I think William Shockley is an alumnus, Stanford University, debated with Dr. Uh, Francis Cress Welsing. Then later on, they came and they were talking about the endocrine disrupting chemicals. 
Uh, and they talked about a study that was done at Washington State University. I said, my goodness, that's right. I'm right here in Washington. They just had the freaking Apple Cup uh, right across the street here. Washington State won and all the rest of that. Let's see. Uh, I thought it was important. They talked about how there seemed to be a uh, cumulative effect uh, with some of these poisons uh, that it seems that maybe people are really sim sensitive to some of these chemicals. So if the dad was exposed, then next generation where his son, uh, it would be an even greater impact than it just keeps go keeps intensifying uh, as you're being exposed to more and more poisons and toxins and all the rest of it. Um, mm -mm -mm. Let's see, that's for chapter eight. For chapter nine, uh, she writes, the United Nations Ocean Conference estimated that oceans may contain more weight in plastics than fish by the year 2050. Intentionally or not, human beings are treating the planet, the planet's ocean like a garbage dump. Global cesspool, Dr. Uh, Kamal Kamban said on a pretty regular basis. Um, I looked while we were reading about the garbage patch, uh, and they have pictures of all of this. It is an absolute disgrace. Uh, Dr. Cambon, he would talk about how we're supposed to be the custodians of the planet and keeping it clean and looking out for the squirrels and the otters and the dolphins and sea lions and all the rest. That is not what is happening at all. It is total travesty and stomp on everything. We talked about that in Urugu, very first book that we read in the book club. Total disrespect for everything. Nature, the creator, the planet, frogs, everything, everybody. Uh, which again, some of that is required. If you're going to mistreat 90% of the planet's population, that is going to cause all kinds of uh, imbalances in the known universe just the time energy and resources required for 10% of the population to dominate and stomp on 90% is going to cause a lot of freakish things on the planet. This is a part of that. Uh, let's see. Oh man. She says, so body burdens in animals. She writes, PCBs were found to have reduced testosterone levels, uh, cause unusually short penises, and smaller than normal testicles. There's even a disorder called imposex, which causes female sea snails to develop male sex organs, such sex organs, such as a penis and vast deferens. Now, this is another one. We have the whole, she had a whole chapter in the book talking about gender fluidity and all this about intersex and, and people being confused they're on a continuum right about their sexuality and uh, they even had a report uh, at NPR they were talking about women's colleges and they said what does that even mean I'm not a, a woman I'm on a continuum what does that mean and they were talking about who's going to be allowed and if someone started off there and they identified as a female and then they uh, are transgender and they at some point during their stature change and they begin to identify as a male, they will not be required to leave. They can finish out, get their degree. All of that, again, not saying any of these people should be mistreated, not calling any of these people names, but again, on a planet dominant, just that statistic about the amount of plastic in the water, that there is a greater 
weight of plastic in the ocean than fish. That alone just tells you how thoroughly toxic this planet is when you have all those chemicals and we're, we're not even getting to all of the drugs that she talked about that are in the water system and all the and in the animals probably um, and how that impacts your sexual vitality, your thinking about sexual activity, your, your even your human biology testicles, genitals, all the rest of it and then if your parents have been consuming or impacted by all this and how that gets passed on you it's so much of that like she said in the book where that doesn't even get factored into the equation as opposed to just we need to run and change all the bathrooms and make everything intersex like pause how much of this is the result of the poisoning that the planet is suffering through under white supremacy racism like before we go and change all the facilities and change all the forms and non what is it gender non-binary everything before we get to all that wait a minute how much poison is producing this maybe we dump some of these poisons if flint can get their water correct maybe we won't have so much of this again no one should be mistreated but i mean man uh she says now same thing she talked about tyrone hayes he's been on democracy now and they've had a lot of reports uh talking about his work to disclose what was what changes he was seeing in the frogs where these frogs that were male began to show female behavior um you can check online uh when he started trying to publish and talk about this behavior the response of the company did they want this uh information to be known were they happy about this and and all the rest of it? you can check that out uh online but again if this is the sort of impact that it's having on frogs and other species where you're having females that now start being masculine like i didn't even know that that they have chemicals apparently that you can expose other species to and the females will begin showing masculine behavior in fact they even had uh she had let me just read from the notes because they had the one where she was talking about some of the chemicals where the females were no longer responsive to the males now we sit up we for decades had all these talks and everything about gender wars and conflict between males and females there are many reasons uh, for folks to have problems and we could all do better in how we treat one another but i mean wow is is even some of that all of these bitter and acrimonious fights that we have amongst black males and black females is some of that even i didn't say all but it's even some of that attributable to the chemicals that can maybe make you hostile or alter how you they said emotions that was included things that can be impacted your emotions and then how you feel about the opposite sex and sexual activity and all of that is are these chemicals and poisons is that even contributing to the male female conflict too it is lots to think about uh mm -mm -mm. They said uh, she writes one study found a significant increase in homosexuality in male ibises that were exposed to methyl mercury as a result of the as a result the researchers attribute to a result the researchers attribute to a demasculinizing pattern of estrogen and testosterone expression in the male sexual behavior in birds as in humans is strongly influenced by circulating levels of steroid hormones 
including testosterone. And again, they have so many of these chemicals are testosterone disrupting. And then uh, for males, that has a big impact on fertility and overall health. I mean, lots to think about. Um, and then so many different reports talking about increase in homosexual behavior in animals. If you can do that with animals, again, is some of that people happening with people as well, not just animals? Let's see. When she talked about the uh, steroid, uh, trenboling acetate, hope I'm saying it correctly. Uh, and she talked about how the steroid uh, had been banned, uh, but it used to be used in the bodybuilding community. Just again, like what in the world? <laughs> like for mostly white people, I'm aware you did have some black people, but mostly white people, even the former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, what in the world to be putting this in your body for what? So you can go and get a fake suntan and show your big ripply muscles and then you're filled with poison that's destroying your genitals. Testosterone levels in your body. They talked about that, how that happened for a lot of the folks who were doing that stuff years ago, decades ago in bodybuilding. Mostly white people. Darn near exclusively white people. Uh, let's see. And she said, again, it came up so many times. Like, I hadn't even thought about that. Like, really? You have you can have chemicals that can cause females to become masculine in behavior like what? Right beneath that paragraph I just read, she says uh, researchers have found that fish that are exposed to even low concentrations of trimboline acetate uh, can experience disruptions to their reproductive development and functioning. In particular, female fish become masculinized during their early development and adult females can experience detrimental effects on their fertility. In another wrinkle, a study from Australia found that short-term exposure to trinbolone altered the courtship and sexual behavior of male guppies as well as that of female guppies' receptivity to the male's sexual advances. I mean, that I just found that stunning. I mean, that is so detailed that they're attributing uh, these behaviors uh, to this steroid. Like, this can't, like, what in the world? Now I'm no longer interested in males if, you know, I'm a female. Uh, and, and all these other, I mean, just wow. <laughs> um, And altering the courtship behavior. I would like more details about what that, you know, what does that mean exactly? Altered how and, you know, uh, and, and then making them uh, more difficult to conceive and all the rest of it. But just, man, I don't I don't think we know nearly enough information about the plantation to be able to rule out as, you know, how much of this stuff is impacting our current behavior right now. Uh, let's see. Oh, and the pharmaceutical. Yeah, I thought that was so much. She says, uh, chemicals from the drugs end up in the waterway. As a result, it's hardly surprising that drug polluted waterways are now home to a variety of intersex fish, namely males that produce eggs. I just keep coming back. Like you can talk to me about LGBTQ this all day long and people are being mistreated and blah, 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 blah. And okay. Got all that. Very important no one should be mistreated for any reason gay pride and all the rest of it but wow 
how much of this is all of the poisons and this is pharmaceutical company included how much of this if they're saying that the drugs and what have you run off or however is ending in the water stream is that getting back in the food through animals and other things is that ending up back uh, coming back into humans uh, being ingested getting into our bodies having an impact on our behavior DNA sexual uh, ability to procreate all of that is that's what's happening and again is that is that contributing to some of the beef that we're having between males and females and some of these all of this confusion gender fluidity she called it confusion about sexual identity and I'm a male today I'm a female tomorrow I'm neither by you know the beginning of next week let's see unwittingly we already got that one this will be the last one again I'll just oh and this this is not even included uh, this book does have references but it does not have footnotes within the body of the text I generally am very unhappy about that especially for a book like this that's got so many reports and studies that are mentioned it would be much better to have the footnotes right there especially since I have an e-copy so you could just bang click on it and go but it does have a reference section in the back it has end notes uh, for each chapter basically uh, one of the end notes uh, number four with regards to all the drugs that are used it reads it's widely recognized that the use of pharmaceutical drugs has increased dramatically in the United States and other countries in recent years even when adjusted for inflation spending on retail prescription drugs increased from $90 per person in 1960 to one thousand twenty five dollars in 2017 in the United States alone that to me is staggering and again that would almost be exclusively white people yes non-white people take drugs and all the rest of it but uh, if we're talking about like prescription medication pharmaceutical company and all the rest of it like oh man most non-white people do not have access to pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical uh, drugs and all the rest of it at the same rate as white people do. They just had a report out that was talking about the COVID-19 disparities. And they said that uh, it was a substantial number of non-white people in comparison to white people do not have a regular family physician. Just layers. If you don't have a family physician, it's probably going to be a lot more difficult for you to go to your doctor and get your Prozac or whatever else uh, that you're going to uh, Zoloft or whatever other medication that you're going to be taking your antidepressants and all the rest of, the of it. Um, I mean, but that statistic is just staggering. And then, as she was saying, like how all of that, the same way with the plastic, how that's just choking the ocean, choking the planet. Imagine all of those drugs and she even not even if you're you know just dumping them in the toilet or throwing them down the sink or whatever she was even talking about excreting them through your urine bathtub or whatever else even that because there's so much of it that even that and the drugs are so powerful that even that is having an impact on other species and what have you in the water so I mean I just think it's it's quite a bit uh, to consider. Uh, and I think any of this, I've heard so many heated arguments on this program and many other forums where people will talk about sexual behavior and sexual confusion and all the rest of it and name call and you're a homophobe and people are people and we should all just love. And, you know, I was born like this and all the rest. 
like pause all of that let's go study a little bit about these chemicals how they impact the frog let's go look at mr hayes study on the frog let's process all of that and then maybe even let's go look at our refrigerator and cabinets uh what do you call it the uh medicine cabinets in the bathroom and then maybe come back after we did some study and maybe have a reevaluation about what we think about all this gay pride intersex non or uh non-gender bathrooms and all the rest of it gender neutral that's it gender neutral bathrooms let's go look at some of this research and then maybe reconvene and see what we think uh any other folks thoughts that they want to get in before well actually let me look should we get to the second audio segment we should just get to the second audio segment if you have additional thoughts that you did not get to share write them down uh, because we're going to start the second audio segment now we will have ample time for everyone to share once we are done uh, again we are reading Shana Swan's Countdown uh, we're picking up on cap- chapter 10 uh, I guess we should be mindful since it's supposed to deal with demographics let's have our thinking caps on see if she's giving us any code about white supremacy racism context of white supremacy audio segment Ten. Imminent social insecurities, demographic deviations, and the unraveling of cultural institutions. Replacement values. When people hear about the precipitous decline in sperm counts that has taken place in Western countries, some shrug it off and say, well, the world is overpopulated. Fewer kids is a good thing. But that's not necessarily true. Western cultures are experiencing a demographic shift. Their populations are aging. And with birth rates dropping, these countries are not replacing their populations. This is even more true during the age of COVID-19. It would require couples to have an average of 2.1 babies to sustain a country's population through new births alone. But in most Western and in some Eastern countries, that benchmark isn't being achieved. In the United States, for example, the fertility rate, which is defined as the average number of children born per woman, was 1.8 in 2017, a 50% drop from 1960, according to data from the World Bank. In 2018, the United States had the lowest number of births in 32 years. In Canada, the fertility rate dropped from 3.8 in 1960 to 1.5 in 2017. In Italy and Spain, the fertility rate is now down to 1.3. In Hong Kong, it has plummeted from 5.0 in 1960 to 1.1 in 2017, while in South Korea, it has dropped from 6.1 in 1960 to 1.1 in 2017. And the number of babies born in 2019 in China fell to its lowest point since 1961, triggering what's being called a looming demographic crisis. A major analysis from the Global Burden of Disease study corroborates these worldwide findings. 
using fertility data from 195 countries and territories, after accounting for mortality and migration rates, the researchers found that the total fertility rate decreased in all the countries included in the study and declined globally by 49 percent between 1950 and 2017. If you're suffering from stat overload, sorry about that, but I want you to have a sense of the scope and magnitude of these shifts. This is a sea change. For many years, the world's population seemed to be rising at a steady clip. If the world's average fertility rate in 1970 had remained consistent and still held true today, the global population would be 14 billion, or nearly double what it is currently. But things didn't play out that way. While the decline in sperm counts in Western countries has undoubtedly played a role in this decreasing fertility rate, other factors are influencing these shifts, too. In the United States and many other countries, men and women are waiting longer to get married, and they're having their first child at an older age, which leads to smaller families. Once people start having fewer children, they're unlikely to stop because they may discover that having fewer offspring is easier to manage and more affordable. A leading cause of this downward fertility trend, according to a 2018 report on global fertility rates, reflects the increase in women's choices, which have grown exponentially in some parts of the world. In particular, increases in women's education levels and women's reproductive rights, which include the availability of contraceptive methods around the globe, are driving the declining birth rate. The correlation between a young woman's educational opportunities and the number of children she's likely to have is clear throughout the world, but it is particularly noteworthy in countries where historically girls didn't have the same educational opportunities as boys. A 2015 study by researchers from the Harvard School of Public Health examined the effects of schooling on teenage fertility in Ethiopia based on education reform policies that were introduced in 1994. The researchers found that each additional year of school led to a 6% reduction in the probability of teenage marriage and teenage childbearing. Similar relationships have been found between increases in female education and lower rates of early childbearing in Indonesia, as well as in Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, and other countries in sub-Saharan Africa, where, historically, the gender gaps in secondary school enrollment between boys and girls have been sizable. What's more, between 1950 and 2016, dramatic declines in the birth rate that occurred in the Republic of Korea and Singapore coincided with heavy investments in education for girls, efforts to increase women's participation in the workforce, and high rates of urbanization. Indeed, urbanization has been acknowledged as a significant factor in the fertility decline of recent decades. Between 2011 and 2015, women living in rural areas in the United States were 32% more likely to have had three or more births than women in urban areas. This may be partly because in rural areas, children are often viewed as valuable commodities, as part of the free labor force that can work in the fields, feed the cows or horses, collect eggs, or handle other essential chores. In cities, by contrast, kids, beloved as they are, 
become more of a financial burden than an asset, another body to feed, clothe, educate, and rear, all of which is generally more expensive in a city or suburban environment than in rural areas. Given that between 2000 and 2016, the share of people living in urban areas in the United States has remained steady while the proportion has increased in suburban and small metropolitan areas and decreased in rural areas, it's not surprising that the nation's fertility rate has been declining. Global Population Ups and Downs Despite the downturn in birth rates in the Western world, a large swath of the world still has fertility rates above replacement levels. In Chad, it's 5.8. In the Congo and Mali, it's 6.0. And in Somalia, it's 6.2. So while the fertility rate is declining in some parts of the world, it's still high in other regions, particularly certain African countries, which is why the world's population is currently increasing. Nevertheless, the planet's population growth isn't likely to continue the way demographers once predicted. The United Nations Population Division has developed various scenarios, based on statistical models, to project the growth trajectories of the world population. Of particular interest are three scenarios called the high, medium, and low variance, or growth forecasts. The medium variant, which many demographers consider to be most likely to play out over the rest of the country, is the middle-of-the-road scenario. In 2019, the UN's medium variant estimated a world population in 2100 of approximately 11 billion. By contrast, the high variant projection is based on a higher forecasted birth rate than the medium variant, while the low variant prediction reflects birth rates that are lower. Under the high-variance scenario, the world's population would be 15.5 billion in 2100, nearly double what it is today. The low-variant predicts a worldwide fertility rise and fall, in which the global population will peak at 8.5 billion in 2050 and then, surprisingly, decline to around 7 billion at the end of the century. While the medium-variance scenario is widely quoted, some demographers and population experts disagree with this projection. Jürgen Randers, Ph.D., a Norwegian academic who co-authored the 1972 book The Limits to Growth, once warned of a potential global catastrophe caused by overpopulation. He has since changed his mind. In a 2014 TEDx talk, he stated, The world population will never reach 9 billion people. It will peak at 8 billion in 2040 and then decline. Randers believes the primary driver of this decline will be that the world's women will choose to have fewer children than in the past. Other experts echo his beliefs. For example, a 2013 Deutsche Bank report suggested that the planet's population will peak at 8.7 billion in 2055 and then fall to 8 billion by 2100. Demographer Wolfgang Lutz, Ph.D., founding director of the Wittgenstein Center for Demography and Global Human Capital in Vienna, Austria, believes that populations that are experiencing low fertility rates are caught in some kind of low fertility trap. 
The gist of his hypothesis is that once fertility has fallen below certain levels and stayed there for a certain time, it might be very difficult, if not impossible, to reverse such a regime change. This hypothesis is based on three independent elements. As a society experiences a drop in fertility rate below replacement level, there will be fewer women of childbearing age, which means the number of subsequent births will decline. New generations embrace a smaller ideal family size, based in part on the lower fertility they see with previous cohorts, which creates sociological reinforcement. And third, assuming that the aspirations of young adults are on an upward trajectory, their expected income isn't likely to parallel this rise which makes the prospect of having fewer children feel more realistic. In Lutz's view, these three factors will contribute toward a downward spiral in the number of future births. In some ways, age is more than just a number. The demographic picture for the United States and the rest of the world today looks quite different from the way it has in recent decades, and this trend is expected to continue. Growth from 1950 to 2010 was rapid, the global population nearly tripled, and the U.S. population doubled, as a 2014 Pew Research Center report noted. However, population growth from 2010 to 2050 is projected to be significantly slower and is expected to tilt strongly to the oldest age groups, both globally and in the U.S., we are already seeing sizable shifts in this direction. In 1960, 5% of the world's population was 65 and older. In 2018, that proportion rose to 9%, according to the World Bank. Similarly, 9% of the U.S. population was 65 and older in 1960. In 2018, the proportion rose to 16%. And in the 28 countries that make up the European Union, 10% of the population was over 65 in 1960, while in 2018, that figure rose to 20%. Everywhere in the world, the over 65 population has nearly doubled from what it was in 1960. As the birth rate declines and life expectancy increases, the population of elderly people continues to grow throughout the world. Life expectancy in the United States is now 79 years, up from 70 in 1960. In Japan and Switzerland, it's now 84, compared to 68 and 71, respectively, in 1960. Admittedly, these increases in life expectancy are one of the great achievements of the 20th century. But the declining birth rate is not. That shift is the opposite of what was happening a century ago when sperm counts and fertility rates were high and lifespans were considerably shorter. This is where the aforementioned demographic time bomb comes in. Population experts and scientists fear that future generations will struggle to meet the needs of an ever-increasing number of older adults and retired workers and their pensions slash social security obligations. Regarding countries where the fertility rate has dropped, particularly in North America, Asia, and Europe, the United Nations Population Fund's report, State of World Population 2018, noted, with larger groups of older people and a shrinking labor force, 
these countries face potentially weaker economies in the near term. In most developed areas of the world, the proportion of older adults already exceeds that of children, and by 2050, one in six people in the world will be over age 65, an increase from one in 11 in 2019. There will be far fewer people of working age to support those who are over 65. As the population ages, the ratio of older adults to working age adults, defined as those 20 to 64, is projected to rise. In the United States, for example, in 2020, there are about 3.5 working age adults for every adult of retirement age. By 2060, that proportion is expected to shrink to 2.5. Since economically active people pay considerably more in income tax and other taxes, while economically inactive people, such as children and older adults, tend to be bigger recipients of government spending in public education, health care, and pensions, an increase in the dependency ratio would cause fiscal problems for the government of that country. The potential impacts of these shifts are beyond huge, says Daryl Bricker, Ph.D., a demographic commentator and co-author of Empty Planet, the shock of global population decline. There are questions about how to support an aging population and a need to rethink all aspects of how public money is spent on pensions, health care, city infrastructure, schools, the military. Those are young people's games. What happens when there aren't enough young people? Who's going to pay for retirement? When you have a consumption-based economy, what happens when your population is old and the wealth resides with the older generation? These shifts have many potential consequences for societies. These include reductions in economic growth, decreasing tax revenue, greater use of Social Security with fewer contributors, and increasing health care and other demands prompted by an aging population. According to the 2017 Global Burden of Disease Study, in the United States, a doubling in the number of adults over 65, which is expected by 2060, could lead to more than a 50% increase in the number of older adults requiring nursing home care by 2030, according to the Population Reference Bureau. How we manage these changes will have significant implications not only on the economy, but also on our culture, politics, and nearly every aspect of society. In the United States, these changes could lead to an epic crisis for Medicare and Social Security, warns Daniel Perrin, a nationally known policy leader and lobbyist on health care, public debt, and senior issues. After all, both programs are financed through taxes that are tied to workers' earnings. A decline in the working age population could drain the financial reservoirs of these resources. Yet, Perrin says, Many people aren't aware of these demographic shifts, and those that do know about this have a hard time wrapping their minds around it. They have a hard time squaring this with human history. As a result, policymakers in the United States are unprepared for these population shifts and the economic and social support challenges that are sneaking in along with them. For the year 2091, 
The Social Security Administration predicts that expenditures will exceed income by at least 4.48% and possibly increase to 5.97% if fertility rates stay low. It doesn't take a math whiz to see how that's problematic for the sustainability of this social support institution. Research suggests that a country's peak potential for economic growth occurs when the proportion of the population that is of working age, 15 to 64, is larger than the proportion that is of non-working age. Such a country is said to reap a demographic dividend. This is true throughout the world, but changes are afoot on this front, too. Since the 1960s, the proportion of the population that's of working age increased in high-income countries, crossed the significant 65% threshold in the late 1970s, then remained relatively steady for the next two decades. Things started to change in 2005, as the proportion of working-age people began to decline in these countries, and as of 2017, in 12 of 34 high-income countries throughout the world, the proportion of the population of working age is less than 65%. That's problematic on many levels. Shifts such as these can have profound implications for the economic vibrancy, as well as the cultural and social conditions of a particular region. In these countries, changes in the proportion of working age adults to older adults could have such a significant effect on economic productivity that it will likely lead to later retirement, well after age 65, which is already occurring in the United States, Australia, and Japan. These changes mean that by the time you're over 65, you may not be able to draw Social Security payments or Medicare or have access to the health care you need if there aren't enough people to provide it. Notably, Japan's proportion of the population that's of working age has dropped to less than 60%. In Japan, the 65-plus proportion of the population was 6% of the total in 1960 and surged to a whopping 27% in 2018. These days, there aren't enough healthcare workers to care for the elderly population, and restrictive immigration laws aren't helping. Meanwhile, the birth rate is down to 1.4, sperm counts are low, and fewer males are being born compared to females, as often happens in response to environmental stressors. At the same time, more women of childbearing age are putting their careers first and postponing or rejecting marriage and motherhood. The Japanese culture places such a premium on professional success and long work hours that many people of reproductive age reportedly aren't even interested in having sex, according to multiple sources. This has supposedly given rise to celibacy syndrome, Sekusu Shinai Shokogun, which has been described as a decline in sexual interest and activity or even romantic relationships among young adults in Japan. The reasons for this sexual slump aren't well understood. As an article in The Independent noted in 2017, the fertility crisis has left politicians in Japan scratching their heads as to why youngsters are not having more sex. Naturally, there are theories, ranging from the enduring social values of modesty and purity in Japan, which make the prospect of casual sex difficult to navigate, 
to young Japanese men's and women's changing life desires. For example, being more dedicated to careers, not wanting to have traditional relationships, and showing an increased interest in online pornography. Whether hormonal factors or dietary influences play a role is a matter of conjecture, but some evidence suggests that testosterone is lower among Asian people and that greater consumption of soy foods, which are rich in estrogenic compounds, may have a libido-compromising effect in men. It may be that, in Japan, a perfect storm of physiological, cultural, dietary, and environmental influences is leading to a loss of that loving feeling, not just lower sexual frequency, but also lower sexual satisfaction. Interestingly, this conscious or unconscious uncoupling, along with the so-called epidemic of loneliness that's been identified in the country, has spawned some new social inventions to help people feel less alone. In Japan, anyone who wants to have a child without actually having one can buy a toy-sized robot companion that has the mental acuity of a fifth grader. For $3,000 or more, men can purchase lifelike anatomical female sex dolls for companionship. It's not unusual to see men taking these dolls for walks in wheelchairs in public. The Japanese artist Tsukimi Ayano has been crafting mannequins and positioning them throughout the tiny village of Nagoro in southern Japan in an effort to make the place feel more populated as people move away or die. Recently, an industry has sprung up that allows lonely people to rent family members, actors who play the roles of spouses, parents, children, or grandchildren, for temporary companionship. One of the hazards of the occupation? Client dependency. Sometimes clients just don't want to say goodbye to these rented relatives. A salon owner in San Francisco, Shiori, 43, was raised in Japan and came to the United States in 2001. Married with two children, she and her family traveled to Japan every few years to visit relatives, including Shiori's younger sister, who is single and doesn't want to have children. While visiting Japan in August 2019, Shiori was struck by the sense that people are lonely. Country schools have been reduced to one-room schoolhouses because there are so few children. Instead of dating, young adults prefer to relax by going to a manga cafe or an internet cafe. The population of Japan has been shrinking steadily since the 1970s. By 2065, it is expected to drop to about 88 million, compared to 126.5 million in 2018. With fewer babies being born and a growing elderly population, Japan is facing the prospect of an unparalleled demographic crisis that could have significant ripple effects socially, economically, and politically. To try to avert this looming crisis, some local governments in Japan have been offering cash incentives to encourage young women to get busy having babies. While some evidence suggests that this approach has spurred a slight uptick in the fertility rate in certain areas, whether it will last remains to be seen. The situation in Singapore is equally disturbing. The most recent figures put the total fertility rate at 1.1. In 2018, 
the personal lives of Singapore citizens were examined in detail in the country's parliament. As members wrung their hands over the country's low birth rate and wondered why government schemes to encourage parenthood hadn't produced more results. A minister said Singapore's total fertility rate had fallen below replacement levels for some 40 years, noting that these same trends have played out in developed East Asian societies, such as Japan and South Korea. The parliament recognized that financial and legislative measures alone aren't enough to turn things around. When a popular online publication solicited ideas from readers for ways to improve Singapore's birth rate, all the suggestions related to improving social support, financial incentives, access to childcare, and free fertility checks, and encouraging Singaporeans to have more sex, which surveys suggest they aren't doing on their own. One 32-year-old man suggested the parliament should start a campaign to make it fashionable to have sex. Another suggestion, the best role for women is at home which suggests that one backlash to low fertility rates, at least in Singapore, is to try to keep women out of the workplace and have them stay home to raise children instead. What's happening in Singapore and Japan provides a cautionary glimpse into the future for the United States and other countries that have declining fertility rates. So far, Japan and Singapore have been unable to turn their birth rates and population declines around. In the United States, we're on the same trajectory, and we may end up facing similar challenges. Which sex is outnumbered now? Around the world, the ratio of men to women is changing, too. Historically, 105 males have been born for every 100 females, which means that 51.5% of births have been male. This is called the secondary sex ratio, and this is what the World Health Organization expects the ratio of males to females to be at birth. It's considered the natural equilibrium, in other words. But this ratio isn't stable. It's influenced by biological, environmental, social, and economic factors. Why this matters? The sex ratio can change in both human and wildlife populations in response to environmental factors and personal stressors. A shift in the sex ratio, which is usually in the direction of fewer male births, can be a sensitive indicator of sudden or pervasive environmental dangers. Surprisingly, a man's exposure to these dangers is more likely to lower the chances that his child will be a son than his female partner's exposure is. As you saw in earlier chapters, while they're in the womb, males appear to be more sensitive to prenatal exposure to toxic chemicals as well as to catastrophic events in the external world. Research has found that mothers who had the highest exposure to polychlorinated biphenols, PCBs, from consuming contaminated fish from the Great Lakes were less likely to have a male child. And studies in Canada, Taiwan, and Italy have produced similar findings stemming from exposure to environmental toxins. Remember, despite being banned in 1979, PCBs and other persistent organic pollutants, or POPs, continue to linger in our air, water, and soil. They're forever chemicals, with the potential to do endless harm. Meanwhile, the 1995 Kobe earthquake in Japan, 
the 9-11 attack in New York, economic downturns, and war have all been shown to slightly lower the ratio of boys to girls that are born. In the case of the Kobe earthquake, some researchers suggest that the sex ratio changes may be due to acute stress and a reduced sperm motility. Fortunately, the effect on sperm motility is usually temporary and is typically restored to where it was within two to nine months. Climate change also appears to be skewing the sex ratio. One study found that recent temperature changes, especially very hot summers and very cold winters, in Japan correspond to a lower ratio of male-to-female newborn infants, partly because of a dramatic increase in the proportion of male stillbirths. In particular, nine months after a very hot summer in 2010 and nine months after an especially cold winter in January 2011, more females were born than males. It's not only external environmental factors that can affect a male baby's chances of surviving in utero. An expectant mother's stress level can also play a role. A study from Denmark found that among 8,719 pregnant women, those who experienced high or moderate levels of psychological distress in early pregnancy were less likely to give birth to baby boys. The mothers with the highest levels of psychological stress, based on their responses to a commonly used health questionnaire, had boys 47% of the time, whereas unstressed mothers gave birth to boys 52% of the time. This discrepancy may not seem like a big deal, but it means the difference between a sex ratio of 0.85 and 1.07, a considerable gap. The researchers concluded that stress during pregnancy is a likely culprit in the decreasing sex ratio in many countries. While the biological mechanisms behind these effects aren't clear, some researchers suspect that after the 20th week of pregnancy, Male fetuses may be more sensitive than female fetuses to a mother's corticosteroids, the hormones that are produced by the adrenal glands at higher levels in response to stress. This elevated stress reactivity could jeopardize the viability of males while they're in the womb. Regardless of the precise mechanisms behind these influences, Given that males are especially threatened by environmental chemicals, climate change, and a mother's psychological stress, they will continue to face dangers in utero unless the world as we know it changes dramatically. And that will do it for this week's section of the reading. We will pick up next week. Uh, we are still in chapter 10. Uh, we'll be on the subsection, The Future Fallout potential and then I don't know I'm trying to we might we might wrap this up next week um, mm, we'll be close we might not finish but we'll be close uh, to wrapping it up next week we'll have to see anywho the number to dial is 720-716-7300 the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate email again is until justice at gmail dot com let's see if we 
neglected any folks thank you all for being patient uh, if you had any thoughts anything stood out on the second portion of the reading or anything that you just forgot uh, or didn't get a chance to share during the first audio segment uh, if you have time commentary to share line should be open if you have a hand up proceed Maybe I'll give folks a sec to see if they get their notes together or if anything's Can I be heard? Oh, they got Z's mom. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I thought this was a really interesting um, chapter, especially in light of, um, I think the Supreme Court right now is actually having a hearing based on um, Roe versus Wade and an abortion um, and states having the right to ban abortion. So I think it's really interesting because I, I definitely think that there's a correlation between the um, fact that a lot of white women are not having children or not having as many white children and the fact that they're pushing so hard to um, ban abortion in a lot of places. So I just thought that that was really interesting that this chapter is talking about it. And she even specifically talks about how the percentage of workers, I think she was saying that we're around 65% um, of workers or people in working age, and they're not going to be able to take care of the aging population. I thought all of that was just uh, really interesting in terms of the the laws that are being passed now. Um, I also think it's interesting because... Um, even if there's an aging population, you would think that the society is, especially a country such as the U.S., is so wealthy because it extracts so much wealth from other countries that it would be able to still um, take care of this aging population. Um, but that's all I have to say for now. I also thought the section on Japan was really, really interesting I think I have to think about it more because um, I've always, I've heard a, a lot about the um, birth rates in Japan being really low, actually in, in Japan and in Europe too. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I, I never even thought about the, the idea about soy and that affecting um, sperm motility. I actually eat um, a lot of products with soy. So, and I've heard things about tofu not being healthy. So, I thought that part was really interesting as well. And I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Z's mom. Lots of uh, important tidbits to think about, uh, especially with the uh, aging. Or she didn't say white, but predominantly aging white population here. Uh, and what happens with some of these uh, populations when you start either not having too many children, how that can have an impact, unforeseen consequences, as they say. Uh, any of the other folks comment here that they want to make sure they get in. Double check. Don't wait till the last minute if you have a thought to share. Double check down the road before we wrap things up. Uh, let me get in. The rest of our emails as well uh, so one of our investors he wrote in so this is chapter 10 continuing his email 
Western cultures are experiencing a demographic shift. Their populations are aging and with birth rates dropping, these countries are not replacing their populations. Will this lead to even more violence, either directly or indirectly, against non-white people due to fear of genetic annihilation? This text indirectly seems to make a case for it. Uh, I would have asked for maybe one more sentence. What exactly about this book suggests that indirectly there could be an increase in violence as a result of a decrease in the population of people classified as white? Uh, Number two. So while the fertility rate is declining in some parts of the world, it's still high in other regions, particularly certain African countries. This can't be seen as good news to the racist white supremacists. Absolutely not. Number three, the demographic time bomb. Future generations will struggle to meet the needs of an ever increasing number of older adults. I guess they will need at least some non-white victims to take care of these old white people. Already seeing some of that right now. They're talking about nursing shortages uh, through COVID-19 and elder care facilities and all that have been struggling through all of this. I can see all those problems getting worse as this continues and because there will be even more older people who need to be in some sort of facility or need some sort of care and all the rest of it. So, uh, number four climate change skewing the sex ratio global warming contributes to decreasing sperm counts the the COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow recently ended and so called non-white underdeveloped countries were critical of it because the developed countries did not fulfill their promise of 100 billion dollars in loans and grants by 2020 to mitigate climate change The vast majority of greenhouse gases are emitted by the developed countries, white people. That's been a common refrain, I think, this week where people as white are the ones who are causing these problems, polluting, dumping all these chemicals, are responsible for climate change or whatever it is. But they're not being identified specifically as this is you. This is not an everybody. All of us people on the night. No, this is you. And then you specifically should be accountable held responsible for what you've done that is consistent uh, within this system Uh, let's see let me look at some of my notes from chapter 10 that we did not complete Uh, okay she starts off chapter 10 uh, about imminent social insecurities as a result of population change with the refrain uh, that many people will often say well the world is overpopulated fewer kids is a good thing I've heard that my entire life Um, literally like white teachers that I went to school with uh, would say that white people in general that I've been around I've even heard non-white people say that the world is overpopulated not having children is great that's awesome Uh, I, I even heard some people say that they personally didn't have children because they thought the world is already overpopulated. So that's my contribution to uh, a a planet that is too bloated already. I won't have any children. Generally speaking, the overpopulation is talked about with non-white people. If you pay attention, it's generally not like I think Z's mom was saying they got the abortion thing right now. And I think that's directly retired to what we're talking about right here. Jane Elliott has been on this program and said that before. Dr. Welsing said that before. 
make sure that these white women are not wasting and just tossing out a perfectly good white baby who could come along and be another race soldier in 20 years or so. We do not want to do that, put them up for adoption or whatever it is, but we don't have enough individuals classified as white to be wasting anyone. Got to squeeze every drop, as they say. Um, let's see. Next to see, despite the downturn in birth rates in the Western world, a large swath of the world still has fertility rates above replacement levels. I thought it was so interesting because where did they go immediately? We've had all this talk about Western world, this and what's going on in England and what's happening in Canada and the UK and Australia and white, 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 white. She included a little bit about Japan in this section, but for the most part, it's been overwhelmingly white, 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 the Dutch hunger study and what's happened in the Netherlands and blah, blah, blah. The one spot on the planet where, whoa, they are bucking the population trends, the continent and specifically sub-Saharan Africa, Chad, the Congo, Mali, Somalia. Somalia is not sub-Saharan Africa, but either way, uh, the continent, that's where, wow, now we've got lots of dark people. I said Nigeria is on that list as well, even though they didn't get mentioned they'll be brought up later in the book um but that's you know and, and like i said i don't think any of that is like oh wow this is awesome and you know this will be great to have all of these people dark people come in to help us make sure that we have people on the planet it's like what are we gonna do can we get some more ebola let's see next Again, they have uh, all of these folks projecting sociologists and people who uh, demographers, that's what they call, uh, who were saying, oh, my gosh, the world's population is it's going to be a problem. It can end the whole world with overpopulation. And like I said, generally, if you listen, they're talking about non-white people. And what do we need to do to get non-white people to stop having children? Can we get more condoms? Can we teach them sex education? Like something. Uh, she continues. She says, demographer. Wolfgang Lutz, PhD, founding director of the Wittgenstein Center for Demography and Global Human Capital in Vienna, Austria. Man, we got to ask African 1884. Does he know about this institution? Uh, we do our global Sunday talk next time. He's in Austria, Vienna, I believe uh, that populations are experiencing low fertility rates are caught in some kind of low fertility trap. White people. The gist of his hypothesis is that once fertility has fallen below certain levels and stayed there for a certain time, it might be very difficult, if not impossible, to reverse such a regime change. I thought that was very important because it seems like white people may be in that group where they've had difficulty with fertility, reproduction numbers for a long time across a large swath of their population, Europe, North America, so-called. Uh, that might be a part of, we had, uh, I think one of our investors wrote in, like, what is their response to all of this and what are they going to do? That might be why you have all this technology, IVF and freezing eggs and all the rest of it. Extreme measures, cloning, even extreme measures may be required to keep all of this going. Just maybe, uh, let's see. Do they have, uh, black demographers? Do they have demographers on the continent? or Barbados, other parts of the world, the Caribbean, 
down in Haiti? Do they have uh, the Center for Demography and Global Human Capital in Port-au-Prince? Does that exist? Maybe they got one of those uh, on the campus of Howard Spelling, uh, Spellman, excuse me, Grambling, North Carolina A&T, maybe. Uh, let's see. The graying, uh, they talk frequently about the browning of the population in the U.S. I've also seen a number of reports where they talk about the graying. That one generally they do uh, come out and they'll be very explicit. White people, uh, older population of white people, what will that mean? That's one that I bring up all the time when they talk about infrastructure and why you see all this resistance to infrastructure. We don't want to fund schools. We got old white people, nursing homes. Let's do something about uh, our nursing home crisis and making sure that we have medical professionals that can deal with an aging population. That's what they want to focus on. Not all the rest of this fooey children and head start. Like we're not even having children. Take care of the old people, man. Get my AARP card. Let's see. She writes 9% of the U.S. population was 65 and older in 1960. In 2018, that proportion rose to 16%. And in the 28 countries that make up the European Union, white people, 10% of the population was over 65 in 1960. While in 2018, that figure rose to 20% everywhere in the world. The over 65 population has nearly doubled from what it was in 1960. Now, again, some of this, hey, people are living longer medical advances and white people taking all those pharmaceutical drugs and everything else people are living longer that's supposed to happen more food better technology right on however as she's been saying that coupled with the not having as many children to replace you just have people who live a really long time and then don't really have folks who are there to look out for them or nurse come and dump their bedpan and you know all the rest of things that you would need for an aging population and we might even have an aging population that is in poor health which could be the worst of all worlds if you are older and then have been eating bad and all the rest of it like woof to be in your old age and then have poor quality of life like the worst of all possibilities uh let's see She writes studies in Canada, Taiwan, and Italy have produced similar findings. She has research from all over the world. You would have to understand white supremacy, racism. No way you could look at all these places. Folks mention that repeatedly. Uh, but similar findings stemming from exposure to environmental toxins. Remember, despite being banned in 1979, PCBs and other persistent organic pollutants, or POPs, continue to linger in our air, water, and soil there forever chemicals with the potential to do endless harm. I'm reminded of a terrible thing to waste, Harriet A. Washington. Uh, those chemicals where white people either do not do a good job of cleaning things up or noting where this is and they will just dump black people especially in these areas and where there will either be forever chemicals in the soil or contaminated water source or, source or both whatever it is uh, that just makes it a really super toxic environment. She talked about that and these forever the stuff that doesn't even break down, just poisonous, you know, 50, 100 years on. It is still uh, poisoning whoever it happens to be there. 
even in the case of some of the chemical or chemicals, sometimes they'll bury the chemicals in the ground in some sort of container, and then the container will deteriorate over time and it just leaches back into the soil. Call that unwittingly, too. Uh, anything else? Last one I'll get in. Uh, she says, while the biological mechanisms behind these effects aren't clear, some researchers suspect that after the 20th week of pregnancy, male fetuses may be more sensitive than female fetuses to a mother's corticosoids, the hormones that are produced by the adrenal glands at higher levels in response to stress. This elevated stress reactivity could jeopardize the viability of males while they're in the womb. Just thought that was important. She's talked so much in the book about how uh, for uh, pregnant moms and uh, children that are in utero, depending on the period during the pregnancy, they may be even more sensitive to certain chemicals, hormones, whatever it is, uh, and to be really mindful uh, about that. And then that, you know, it might even be that males specifically are even more susceptible and stress. I mean, you can think of all the other things. Make sure you filter your water and don't bring any Cheetos in here. And we're going to have air filters and all that we can stress. Now, that is a difficult one to try to root out the stress of white supremacy, racism, and that that alone can have an impact not just on the mother's health, the fetus. And then it might be the male's children specifically are even more susceptible to this lots to think about um, just in terms of health overall we didn't even get all the way through chapter 10 so we'll have to kind of make a note and pick up with that uh, next week when we get back to it uh, last thing I'll say and then I'll double check see if anybody has anything else they want to get in before we wrap up but uh, Tyrone Hayes he was mentioned at the book club way back it's not the book club the counter racist yoga retreat in Florida way back in 2019-2020 we were in Florida young academic was like hey you should get uh, Tyrone Hayes PhD you should get him on the program to talk about these frogs man like I said he's been out for years he's been on Democracy Now and other spots folks can check out some of his uh, interviews and what he's had to say about these frogs and how they were impacted by all these poisons in the water but uh, very important Uh, and I did I even emailed Mr. Hayes to see if we can get him as a guest on the program but I didn't hear back I will try again, but I remember that as well. All the way back to the retreat when we were talking about eating well, doing as best you can to stay healthy. Uh, any other comments folks need to get in before we wrap up? Miss anybody? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. A caller in California. Um, and the, what's going on in the area of the world now that's Japan is very, very tragic. I, I suspect, and I may be in error, that that is what happens when an entire landmass um, has been um, victimized by racism and white supremacy and they are, are focused on any and everything besides racism and white supremacy. That's why they are uh, spending their time and energy um, choosing to uh, have sex with um, inanimate objects that they're calling um, robots and AI devices and spending their time and energy at manga cafes which is no more than like a glorified um, comic book shop area and it, it's just really um telling on 
on, on the mental um, state of, of those so-called Asians over there, so-called Asians over there. It's very um, just reminds me of some sort of um, post-apocalyptic dystopic scenario that they are living in um, right now. And um, maybe when I was more confused, I, I would view that um, environment as being um, very, very advanced. But I just think they're in a, a hyper state of being distracted from um, the problem of racism and white supremacy. Um, that that is what that um, appears to be to me now. And I, I just, um, yeah, I, I have a lot to say, but there's not that much time left. I'll let other folks chime in. I'll meet my line. Let's see if other folks are waiting to chime in. Did any other folks have uh, commentary they wanted to share? Not the case. Uh, anything else that you wanted to get in? Caller in California, if you had any any other comments. Uh, yeah, and uh, perhaps the the situations over there um, is so dire, and their brain computers, um, so-called agents known as Japanese, perhaps their brain computer has computed, hey, it, it, this this planet Earth it has been made miserable by for some reason that they can't pinpoint to being uh, white people. So they're like, um, the brain computer is computing. I'm not going to bring offspring into this planet because uh, we already are, are very miserable with our um, overworked existence um, and we we are being um, bullied by all of these um, concepts they believe to be countries that uh, only allow them to produce um, cars and other appliances technology. And, yeah technology and don't have don't allow them to have a uh, 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 efficient military they're only allowed to have a self-defense force so perhaps the, the 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 populace over there has computed that I can't I don't want to bring an offspring into this planet on top of the chemical warfare that um, white people have um, um, enacted over there as well and maybe this is just the um, uh, uh, result of being nuked twice by white people perhaps this is this is the kind of state of mind it puts a a victim in that they rather um, <laughs> go to cafe shops and, and read mangas and watch porn um, instead of interacting with their um, their their counterparts and, and becoming serious about solving the, the problem because I'm sure they have uh, like tremendous intellect over there but it's being directed in all these um, places white people have allowed them to direct it and it's just very very tragic a tragic a tragic travesty I, I would say and um, yeah, I, I've been over there, and uh, I didn't I didn't see uh, any people walking around with um, robots. But if, if this white woman is saying it's happening over there, then perhaps it is. Um, is there is there anything else? Um, yeah, I think that's all for now. Thank you. Well, much obliged, our caller in California. There is a report. I think it got mentioned on the cows. This is uh, hmm, maybe 10 years ago. There was a report about how non-white people in that part of the world, so-called Japan, uh, have been uh, infantilized 
I think is the term that they use uh, as a result of World War II and having a nuclear bomb uh, dropped on them and kind of what you kind of see in terms of the cultural expression, the Hello Kitty backpacks and all of that and anime and kind of what you heard, some of what you heard in the audio segment this week and where their interests are not really wanting to have children and hanging out and watching pornography. I'd be super interested. Uh, are they watching pornography with white people or is it pornography with other so-called Asian people? But either way, just being more interested in, in engaging with pornography online stuff when the computers or what have you, these robots and, and all the virtual stuff that is, uh, you know, the new rage as opposed to actually being with an actual person where you could procreate and all of that fascinating. And that too, probably an impact of white supremacy racism. They have one of those garbage patches over there too. So that could be direct white supremacy, racism, stress and epigenetics and then the chemicals too. So lots to think about all the way around. But yeah, that was fascinating. And, and to hear how one population of non-white people not classified as black, but a population of non-white people, how they too are being impacted by this entire poison environment of white supremacy, racism, like uh Wow, lots to think about. And you didn't even get the, the atomic bomb. Talk about forever chemicals. They're still dealing with all that. Uh, and people having birth defects and everything else from uh, the uh, Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima that they brag about. So, yeah, lots of process. As I said, I'm not sure if we'll be done uh, next week with this book, but we will be close to the finish line. So if we're not totally done next week, uh, we'll have like a very short snippet to finish up. So almost there. Uh, and in fact, I can say next book, I had been thinking like, Hey, we did have some people who said they might be interested in Elizabeth Holmes, the book about her, that court case is going on right now in California. Uh, she just took the stand. In fact, she uh, testified this week and was lying there too. Uh, but we could read the book about all of that which might be interesting because we'd be reading the book while the trial is going on. We might even be reading the book when the verdict actually comes down. So that'd be a reason to check current events, I guess. Uh, but this week they just had a report, a white woman, her name is uh, Alice Siebold. I think that's how you say it. Alice Siebold. She wrote a book or she's written many books, but she wrote one book specifically mm. called lucky in this book. I guess it was supposed to come out or whatever the case but it's about uh, her own ordeal. Apparently she was raped supposedly uh, roughly 40 years ago. And she later saw this black guy out on the street and identified like, oh yeah, he's the one. And so he was convicted, served all this time uh, as a convicted rapist. And then it turns out they did the DNA test and no, not this guy, false identification, wrongful conviction, all the rest of it. Uh, so this book was about to come out about this no good raping black male and they found out whoops he didn't do it so they decided to, to shelve the book they're not going to release it and uh, the white author uh, Alice Siebel she released this really tacky apology like oh I was wrong and then I contributed to him being locked up and blah 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 all the rest of it so since they're not going to release the book there is no audio book but if we have folks who would be down to narrate we should read this book. Like I saw a snippet of it. Like, oh man, I got it. In fact, I have the whole book. If we have any volunteers who want to read it, I can uh, get you an e-copy of it. So you'll have it in total. You don't have to spend any money. Just if you, you know, I don't know, for whatever reason, if you have any free time this December, 
You need an assignment. You need a distraction from all the craziness as opposed to sitting at home and making gingerbread houses and uh, white elephant Santa and all the rest of it. You can do some recording of the book Lucky. It's just like Emmett Till, man. White women get to lie and make it. And they have tons of books like this. Remember uh, Picking Cotton? Dr. Tommy Kerr used to talk about that one all the time. People should ask him about that. Uh, where the white woman wrote a book. And it's the same thing. She wrote a book falsely identified. I think his name was Matthew Cotton. That's how they picked the title for the book. Uh, falsely identified him. He got convicted and served all this time and everything. And it, nope, whoops, not him. Sorry. At least he got a book deal out of it. Anywho, drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. We have any folks who'd be in, uh, willing to volunteer to read lucky. There's already an audio book for, uh, the Elizabeth Holmes uh, scandal, but I am way more interested than in Lucky than Elizabeth Holmes. Way more interested. Cowbell. That's it. Much obliged for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy this Thursday evening. We'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism. Sobriety would be best. We heard so much about that in this text. My goodness. No drinking, no smoking. You want to be a healthy parent, healthy period, but especially a healthy attempted father, attempted mother. In addition to being sober, if you're going out in a vehicle or whatever it is, you should be alert. If someone is being loud and rowdy, you don't know if it's a Michigan 15 year old or Kyle Rittenhouse or whatever it is, be alert get out of there this is no time to be having uh, verbal confrontations with strangers uh, you should be thinking this person if it's a child woman man you should be thinking that this person could be armed in fact she he could have an entire armed entourage at the ready if you didn't leave your residence ready to die and or kill exit if you're going to be in a vehicle, you're sober, you're buckled, and you are not on a cell phone. Uh, again, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with the race soldiers, badge or no. And we're trying to stay alert as possible. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>